Matthew Martins. Good morning. Welcome to the Room for Nuance podcast. Thanks for having me here. Will you start our conversation in prayer? Absolutely. Thanks, brother. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can spend together. We pray that you would give us wisdom. Uh, we pray that our words would be a blessing and an encouragement uh, and edifying to the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reforming criminal justice. Yeah. You wrote a 416-page book about well, you, how to do it. If you it. include the indexes, <laughs> indices, but yeah, it's yes. uh, 356 pages. That's a difficult conversation to have. Do you think we can sort of solve all the big issues in this podcast? Yeah, we're going to solve them all today. All right, fantastic. Everything. So uh, I was really impressed by your book. I've known you for a long time. You're a good brother, good friend. You've been a fellow church member. Uh, and I've been impressed by the way that you have represented the gospel uh, publicly and privately uh, in your local church and in your career as a lawyer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what qualifies you to write a book about reforming criminal justice? Uh, I don't know if I'm qualified, but I do okay. have some experience, at least in the law. So I graduated from the University of North Carolina Law School, first in my class in 1996. Uh, I clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court for Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist. I worked as a federal prosecutor for about nine years, including as a political appointee in the Bush administration under John Ashcroft when he was attorney general. Uh, I've worked on all types of criminal cases, both as a prosecutor and then about 11 or 12 years as a defense lawyer. I've worked on death penalty cases as a prosecutor and I've prosecuted pretty much everything from bank robbery to drugs to guns to white collar crime. Uh, you name it, I've probably handled it. So I've been a lawyer for about 27 years. So I, I have experience on the criminal side of the law. And then I've also got a law degree, I mean, excuse me, a seminary degree. Mm. I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary in 2010 with a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies, which I pursued on a part-time basis while I was practicing as a lawyer. So I at least have you know, some theological, graduate theological training as well. And over the 27 years, I've tried to spend some time thinking about the law and what it means to practice law as a Christian, in particular, what it means to practice criminal law as a Christian. Uh, that is very impressive. Um, one of the things that I, I've been telling people as I've been inviting them to listen to you speak and inviting them to read your book is that I don't know anyone who knows the Bible and knows the criminal justice system as well as you do. I know people who know the criminal justice system but don't really know Scripture. And I know people who know Scripture but who have never worked in this field. Uh, and I also don't know many people who love Jesus and love America as much as you do. And so I think that is, apart from all of your credentials and your degrees and your positions where you've worked, uh, that, that, that has been my main selling point for you. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't set out in life to write a book. Yeah, uh, it really came about because other people encouraged me to do so, kind of for the reasons that you said, which is that I have experience, uh, both theological training and legal training that folks thought could be helpful to others who are trying to think about these issues. I mean, the issues royal have royaled America, and they royal churches. Uh, and what I'm hoping to do is bring some light and less heat to the conversation. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's interesting you say that. Um, it, you're very careful to say what your book is not about at several yeah. pla at several points in, in the book. At one point you say, this is not a book about race. Yeah. Nevertheless, it does touch on the issue of race. Can right. you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, there's been plenty of books who have 
offered various critiques, whether merited or unmerited, about white evangelicals and their views on race. That's not what my book is. Uh, my book's about criminal justice and the injustices in the criminal justice system cut ac- across more categories than just race, including particularly wealth. Yeah. Uh, and so what I tried to do is focus on what is just and unjust, not what is racist and not racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't talk about the criminal justice system fairly without recognizing that there are racial components to mm-hmm. how it operates both historically and currently. So I don't shy away from those, but it's my yeah. book is not meant to be a book about race. It's meant to be a book about injustice and yeah. justice. Yeah. Uh, and to the extent I have to talk about race to do that fairly, I do. Uh, but I didn't set out to write a book about race, and I don't think I wrote a book about race. I agree. I don't think you did either. You also say that this is not a book about policing. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I've tried to separate what I'm uh, sufficiently expert in to talk about Mm -hmm. and what I'm not. I don't want to roam into areas that I'm not particularly trained in. So I have a brother who's been a police detective for over 20 years. uh, And he and I might write a book about policing in the future, tapping into mm. his expertise. Okay. But what I tried to focus on was the criminal prosecution process right. and the criminal defense accordingly, uh, but not about policing because policing is not my expertise. No, I'm not a criminologist. I'm not a police expert. I do think I have expertise in criminal prosecution. So that's what I tried to focus the book on is the injustice issues, the justice issues and injustice issues that arise during the prosecution process. So yeah. running from selecting a jury to uh, imposing a sentence. I think uh, you've read, you've you've seen Kevin DeYoung's one through four rubric, right? Where people kind of land on issues, right? Four is maybe fundamentalist, one is liberal, and then two and three are somewhere in the the middle. Yeah. I think some of the, maybe the threes, but definitely the fours, in light of what's been happening uh, in our, in our nation, uh, I think that they would look at your book and they would uh, automatically say, oh, okay, there have been a rash of police shootings that have been very controversial. Yeah. And now here comes this guy writing a book to talk about that. Yeah. And that's very much not what this book is. No, I mean, obviously part of what prompted me, and or maybe better said prompted others to prompt me to write the book, was the unrest both in our society and in our churches that arose from police shootings and the discussions that ensued. Yeah. Uh, but, but my book is not about police shootings. Uh, again, I'm not a criminologist and I'm not an expert in policing. Yeah. Uh, and so I have tried to focus on the part of the justice system that I'm to some degree expert in. And it's not about police shootings other than the second paragraph where I give a wave to the fact, the second paragraph of the book where I give a wave to the fact that there have been a series of police shootings that have prompted a lot of discussions in yeah. America. I don't think I mention that again uh, in the rest of the book. Okay. Let's let's talk about one more thing that this book is not about. Yeah. Reforming criminal justice, yeah. right? Yeah. And and we get to the idea of how that is in fact a system, yeah. right? And and two two hot button words you say justice, yeah. people it right sparks right. a immediate visceral reaction, yeah. maybe pro, maybe against, right? Yeah. And then system yeah. Right. Uh, you gave a, a talk to a group of pastors here in Decatur, Alabama, about this subject, and and one of the pastors I thought very insightfully said, "How are you going to deal with the blowback that from from people who are afraid of talking about systems of injustice?" Can, yeah. can you just speak to that? 
Yeah, so I'm not I'm not writing about critical race theory. I'm not writing about um and not intentionally trying to delve into those issues again that I'm not expert in. Our justice system is a system. It right. is not one person. It is a group of people and a group of laws. Frankly, it, we have 3,000 criminal justice systems in the United States, which I talk, talk about because each county, each mm-hmm. state has mm-hmm. its own system with its own rules. Um, so I'm talking about how those systems operate. Uh, that's necessary and inherent in talking about a criminal justice system. Um, so if you think that that's systemic injustice, then I guess I talk about systemic injustice, right. but I don't mean that in a progressive ideological or ideological sense. sense. Yeah. I'm talking about how a system operates and whether that yeah. system operates justly. One of the things that was really eye-opening for me as I read the book was I, I didn't really understand how expansive, or I guess if you're thinking about the system with different, with cogs and gears, I didn't realize how many cogs there were. Yeah. You talk about it from... Can you just run through all yeah. the components in the system? Yeah, I mean, I try to break down in the second half of the book the various elements of a criminal prosecution from beginning to end. So everything from you have to pick a jury. Well, you, know, you even begin with legislating laws. Oh, right, that's the way fair that those too. I mean, you don't even have a, a crime until you have a law. So right. I do have a chapter that begins with the legislature and how they decide what to make certain things crimes and not yes. crimes. And then I turn to, okay, if you've got a crime— or a law that defines crime, now we have to pick a jury. So let's talk about how juries are selected. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a judge who presides over the trial. So let's talk about how judges are selected in our country. And then you have to have uh, evidence that's admitted into evidence. And you have to have a defense lawyer. So I have a chapter on defense lawyers and how they're provided in this country. I have a chapter on how evidence is introduced, mm-hmm. the obligation that the police have to hand over evidence of your innocence. I have a chapter on that. Uh, I have a chapter on sentencing, mm-hmm. a chapter on the death penalty. So I try to break down chapter by chapter the various components of the justice system, explain to people how they operate, explain to lay people. I'm really trying to write yeah. to lay people to explain, here's how this particular facet of the system works. Yeah. Here's how we pick juries. Yeah, I'd spend 10, 15 pages explaining that. And then at the end, try to run it through a filter of biblical justice to say, is the way we have and do pick juries consistent with biblical justice? And we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. Yeah. But uh, speaking of you addressing lay people, of whom I am the foremost, yeah, uh, I, I was texting you all week while I was reading yeah. the book, and at one point I texted you about something that was absolutely mind blowing to me, and you responded with, "Oh yeah, that's right. I forget that I'm talking about things that I learned in the first year of law school that right. most people have never even heard of." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I very much tried to write with a mind of writing to people who don't know the law. Yeah. In other words, part of what I think has been the struggle in the conversations about criminal justice is that people are speaking of things that they feel passionately about, but don't always know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, and so I, what I'm trying to do is like, let's go back to some first principles. Let's go back to some first principles of justice from scripture but also, like, let's go back to some first principles of how the system works yeah. uh, and talk about how it works. Then we can analyze, yeah. is it operating biblically? But if it's if we don't even know how it works, and I wouldn't expect lay people to know how it works. I mean, right. they, they watch Law & Order, and I can tell you Law & Order isn't how it works. And so let me explain how it actually works. Yeah. Uh, and then having given lay people hopefully a good grasp of how it works, that provides a platform to have a further and productive discussion. And that's what I'm trying yeah. to accomplish. 
If you want to help support Room for Nuance, and if you want to help get this message out to as many people as possible, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or any other platform, please be sure to subscribe and leave a good review. It helps us out a ton. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the rest of this episode. Okay, so let's let's go back to Matthew Martin's uh, Bible lover, right? Yeah. N- knows the Bible, also knows the legal system. That is basically what gives a framework to your book. Yeah. So the first half of your book is basically an exposition of a Christian ethic uh, for justice, right? Flowing out from love, correct? And we'll talk about that. And then the second Flowing out ha- from the gospel, actually, but okay, even back up further. Okay, great. Um, how can you understand love apart from the gospel? Right. And then the second half of the book is you you taking that framework and then applying it to those various elements of the legal system, which you explain yeah. uh, so well. So let's let's start there though. Let's let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Let's let's try to define our terms. We yeah. have room for nuance, so yeah. we can. <laughs> you see, I use the name of the podcast as okay. Anyways, it's very savvy of you. Very savvy of me. Uh, let's start off with what I thought was a fantastic quote right right from the introduction. You say, I tell you that justice denied is love denied. And love denied to either the crime victim or the criminally accused is justice denied. This, I hope to persuade you, is not merely my view, but also Christ's view. Yeah. Um, there are a couple things to focus on from this quote, and I think it really sets the agenda for what's going to happen in the first half of the book. You talk about the connection between love and justice. Yeah. You also are careful to talk about justice in relation to the crime victim yeah. uh, and the criminally accused. Yeah. So let's just take both of those. Can you talk about the connection between justice and love? Yeah, I think Augustine in his work, I think it was on the morals of the Catholic Church, uh, put it best when he said, justice is love ruling well. Um, that justice, if it's biblical justice, is an application of love. It is, and, and if we define love as seeking the best, desiring the best, and seeking the best for others, that justice is a way in which we, through the operation of government, seek the best uh, for others. And that's what I was trying to get at here, is that justice is not ultimately designed to harm. Mm-hmm. Justice is designed, if it's biblical, to love. Yeah, And that's what I try to then explain through the rest of the book is how do we operate a justice system when we have two people at conflict, right? Necessarily, when you've got a crime, you've got two people yeah. at conflict. Yeah, That's why we call it the people versus the state. And, <laughs> and you have an individual, excuse me, a people versus the defendant or the state versus the defendant, mm-hmm. not, not people versus the state. Um, but then you have a crime victim and a criminally accused who are obviously at conflict with one another. And the question is, can you love them both? Can you love two people who are in conflict? Don't you have to pick sides? Isn't Mm -hmm. it an us versus them? Isn't it a state versus so-and-so? And what I try to argue and show in the book is that I do think that we can love them both. And in fact, we have an obligation to love them both. And the both part is the second point you made, which is we don't get to pick sides as Christians. We, we're not entitled to say, I love crime victims, but I don't love criminal defendants. You know, they got what they had coming and, and we're not concerned about their well-being. We have an obligation to love even our enemies, uh, to seek their best. Now, what seeking the best of someone who has done wrong will look like yeah. is different than what it looks like to seek the best of someone who's been harmed. 
So the application will be different. Yeah. But the goal, which is to seek their best, is the same for both of them. So as as I was reading your book, I was, uh, first of all, yesing, amening, agreeing. I, I love justice as flowing from love is a classic Christian way of getting to the heart because if justice is giving to a person that which they are owed, you need to have an impetus for that. What what right. should make me want to give that to you? Yeah. Because I, if, if it's nature's just red in tooth and claw, then right. who says I have to give that to you? Right. It has to be that I love you because you are an image bearer of God, so on and so yeah. forth. I think that ter- defining the terms like you just did is, is important. Justice, as Christians have classically understood it, at least since the time of Augustine, is gi- giving to each and every man his due. Mm-hmm. That's how Gus- Augustine defined it repeatedly. And I think that's the generally accepted definition among yeah. Christians today, giving to each and every man his due, what he's owed. And love is seeking the well-being or the good of another. Mm. And so what's interesting is that I think what you see come together in Scripture is that what others are due is our love. Yeah. And thus giving everyone their due, meaning giving them our love, you see love and justice converge in that way. Yeah. Uh, that our obligation is to love others. And I think that's an important point. We tend to think of love as charity, right? as a gift I give you, mm-hmm. as, a, as opposed to something I owe you. Yeah, and you I think, think about it more like mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of out of, you know— if, if I want to, I can, but yeah, if I don't want to, I don't have to. to. And it's, yeah. I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. I think Scripture yeah. teaches that our love is owed to other people. And so to give them our love is to give them justice. Yeah. The application is what's hard, right. what that looks like in a particular circumstance. So this is in pretty stark contrast to something that you deal with at length in the book, which, which is like a Rawlsian, utilitarian yeah. view of justice. And I would say, correct me if I'm wrong here, that's probably the main competing view of justice yeah. in a, in in the West. Yeah, uh, can you can you elaborate on that? What was Rawls's vision for justice, uh, and why can we not accept that as Christians? Yeah, I mean Rawls was probably the most influential moral the- theorist of the 20th century. Uh, wrote a book in the 70s called A Theory of Justice, um, in which he argues for uh, a conception of justice that. Uh, is very different than a Christian one. Uh, it's a utilitarian, you know, in, in essence, a form of a utilitarian one. And for those who haven't been um, steeped in this conversation, can you yeah. explain? Yeah, I mean, utilitarianism says that what is just is that which achieves the best for the greatest number of people. Yeah, it's, it's sort of bean counting. Yeah, it's you sort of add up like how many people are helped by this and to what degree, and so you kind of you have a scale mm-hmm. of of good that comes from this, and then you say, well but there's also negative effects. And so long as the positive effects outweigh the negative effects, utilitarianism says that's just. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's almost a purely consequentialist view of ethics, meaning it looks at what happens, the consequences. Yeah. And that's not- the Ethical a, pragmatism. Yeah, and that's yeah. not a Christian view of justice, that what Christians say is that there are things that are absolutely right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of whether or not the consequences of doing those things uh, may outweigh, the good consequences may outweigh the bad. So, you know, a classic verse, I think it's Romans 3, 8, where Paul refers to the fact that we we can't do evil so that good may result, Yeah. right? He's he's rejecting there the idea of a concept, purely consequentialist or utilitarian type ethic. And so, you know, I'm not a Rawlsian, I'm not a utilitarian, not a consequentialist, you know, or at least purely consequentialist, 
you know, I'm a Christian and right. I'm trying to think about ethics and thus justice as a Christian. So um, how much has that utilitarian thinking worked its way even into Christian ethics? I think you see, I, I think you see it all the time. I think you see people make arguments uh, whether about voting or or other decisions in life by saying, you know, what's the outcome here? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that the outcome is irrelevant uh, to us, um, but our, but you can't justify something by saying, look how it worked out. Yeah. Um, that's not a Christian ethic. It may, there may be good that comes from doing evil things. Paul recognizes that, but that doesn't make the doing the evil things uh, ethically appropriate for Christians. Right. And I do think that we we are become the air we breathe. We live in a utilitarian world, we li- in, where a utilitarian culture where people around us tend to think in that way. And I think it's easy for us to absorb. And so that's again why I'm trying to step back to first principles and say, how do we think about ethics? How do we think about justice as Christians? What are some absolutes that Scripture lays down that we have to follow regardless of? what the consequences might be from doing that. Yeah. Okay. Well, while we're sort of getting under certain presuppositions and and blowing up other ones, uh, you say very early on in the book that the criminal justice system is by definition state-sponsored violence. Yeah. And that is, uh, I don't want to say immediately repulsive to some people, but maybe it is, right? The word violence, it just elicits a negative reaction. Yeah. Yeah, speak to that. Yeah, I mean, when I, I intend to be a little provocative in that, um, but it's in some ways, like people who are more who are political theorists probably are not don't find that jarring. It's sort of the language that that folks use in this space. And what I mean by it is that the way the state operates, particularly the criminal justice system operates, is by coercive force. Yeah, by physical force. Uh, that is by definition, what we're doing when we're enforcing the criminal law. When we arrest someone, mm-hmm. either we are going to wrestle them to the ground, a, a, and sometimes in a violent way. We've seen this yeah. in, in cell, you know, uh, cell phone videos yeah. that have gone viral, right? It's a violent a, a situation. So we're either going to wrestle someone to the ground by force, we're going to shoot them uh, by f- using force, or they're going to submit because they know we will use force if they don't The force is implied. Right, the force is threatened and someone submits before it's applied. Okay. And so, and and, and that that use of force continues throughout the criminal justice process. So the only way someone gets into court after being arrested is again, either because they submit to the fact that they know we will use force or they are forced in there by force. Yeah. Um, The only way someone ends up in a jail cell is because either they're going to go in there with the threat of force or there's going to be force. And we've all seen pictures of, you know, the shield and the officers stuffing right. someone into a cell. And the walls themselves, the walls of the cell themselves are an application of force. Yeah. So we put people in cement boxes and hold them there by force yeah. uh, in jails with guards, prisons with guards. And so that's none of that is meant as a critique. Right. It is meant as a description. When I say the the criminal justice system is the application of state-sponsored violence, I don't mean that as a critique. I mean that as a description. Right. You have to describe it before we can then, and and describe it accurately, before we can analyze whether it is just. Mm -hmm. And so I want to start with 
confronting people with the reality of how the system works. It can become sanitized in our thinking. Again, right, it all yeah. on law and order, it looks so orderly uh-huh. and the defendants in a suit and uh, and everyone's being proper and, yeah. um, and respectful in front of the judge, but it is a forceful, it is a coercive, it is a physically violent operation. Yeah. Uh, and we need to then ask ourselves, what moral authority do we have to use that force and what are the, the moral limitations on the use of that force? Okay, so we're going from the descriptive down to the theological, yeah. right? The fact of the matter is, whether you wish it were this way or not, yeah. the criminal justice system is a, an application of state-sponsored violence. Yeah. Is there theological uh, rationale for that? There's certainly theological support for it. Okay. I mean, Paul writes in... Uh, Romans 13, probably in the most clear biblical explanation uh, affirming this view, he talks about that the state uh, is the the state authorities, the governing authorities are ministers of God to bear the sword against evildoers. I mean, swords are are applications or it's a symbol of violence, right? It's either how we apply force, we actually kill people with it, or we threaten to do so. Yeah. And so I think Paul, in different language, and maybe even more colorful language, describing the state as bearing a sword, he's identifying the tool of the violence. Uh, but you see the application of force throughout Scripture when it comes to punishing crime, whether it's Old Testament descriptions of stoning or, or corporal punishment of other types. I mean, you see in Scripture that force is the means by which criminal justice is carried out. Yeah. Um, and in Paul's day, it was a sword. In our day, it's not a sword, uh, the ultimate one. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the electric chair. Yeah, uh, or, or some or, chemicals. Or some chemicals, yeah. or more recently, a lot of states have gone back to firing squads. Right. But I mean, again, it's the same concept being expressed in a different, different cultural context. Uh, but the, the idea is there, which is that the criminal law is enforced by force, physical force. So let's, let's talk about how Scripture says we can apply force for the sake of justice. Yeah. Uh, you do a lot of great work uh, mining the depths of what Scripture has to say about this uh, from the Old and the New Testaments. What are some of the 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 boundaries that scripture puts in place to make sure that we apply force in such a way as to do justice and not injustice. Yeah. So I think that when I started looking at this and and started thinking about this topic, what I realized is that the church has a lot of resources in this area over history, mainly from just war theory. So just yeah. war theory answers the question, when can a Christian uh, ethically use violent military force, yeah. deadly military force yeah. against other people. In the criminal justice system, we have to answer the question, when can we use violent and maybe even deadly judicial force mm-hmm. against other people? So a good place to start with this is yeah. just war theory. Which you, this is this is the conundrum, three yeah. conflicting, seemingly conflicting truths that you laid out in your book. Number one, killing is morally wrong. Right. Number two, governments have a moral duty to protect their citizens from injustice. Right. And number three, protect their citizens from injustice. Government sometimes needs to use lethal force. Right. That's the conundrum of war. Just war theory. Yeah, that just war theory sets out the answer. How can it be that killing is wrong, government has an obligation to protect, and sometimes governments must kill to protect? Right. That's, and I think the same questions 
slightly modified, but essentially the same questions are presented by the criminal justice conundrum. Uh, killing or using violence against other people is generally wrong. Governments have an obligation to protect their citizens. Sometimes protecting citizens requires using violent force mm-hmm. or killing other citizens. How can you reconcile those three things? And the reconciliation, I believe, is in love. That's what Augustine argued. The, he was one of the, maybe the earliest or certainly one of the earliest Christian fathers of just war theory. And he argued that love can, in effect, walk a battlefield. Mm. Uh, that love can be used, um, can be the goal of war. And in fact, to be just, it must be the goal of war. Uh, and so he began a discussion that continues through modern times to try to understand how love can walk a battlefield. Mm. And I guess what I'm doing is sort of riffing off of Augustine and asking how love can walk a cell block or a mm. courthouse. Yeah, How can we use this seemingly violent system to love other people, to love both the criminally accused and the criminally victimized. We can probably figure out, it might be intuitive, like, I I know how we can do it to to love the victimized. We're going to use violence against the accused. It's like, right, but we got to love the accused too. We have to love our enemies as Christians. There's not a group of people who's exempted from our love. Right. That's true on the battlefield. That's true in the courtroom. Uh, To quote you to you, this is how you sort of bring it all together. You say, Romans 13 offers a way to reconcile the seeming conflict. The state's use of physical force can be moral when its use is both motivated and restrained by the principle of neighborly love. Right. So I think that sometimes folks see Romans 13 as an absolute authorization for the state to do what it wants right? or conversely an absolute obligation for us to submit to the state. Mm. I think that's not correct. Uh, I think what Romans 13 is presupposing is an obligation on the state to act justly. And what Paul is assuming doesn't speak to it here is that this God is not authorizing government officials to act unjustly. He has right. given them a power and that power carries with it an obligation. Psalms two, you know, it speaks of uh, kings of the earth and how they should respond to God and kiss yeah. the son lest he be angry. There is an obligation on their part to act justly, to act in love. Yeah. And so what I'm getting at in the quote you just read is that government should act with the goal of loving citizens, criminally accused and victimized, and the government is restrained um, in its actions because it must act by that motivation. And if it fails to act in love, then it must be restrained itself as an act of love, both an act of love toward the wayward government officials and as an act of love toward the people that are being victimized by those government officials who are failing to act in love. So love has to both motivate what government does and conversely restrain government so that it is only acting to achieve loving ends. I think it's helpful for people to take this this understanding and apply it to other spheres that God has appointed uh, of authority. For example, the family and the rod, right? Everything you just said, it applies to parents and the way they use discipline with their children. Parents aren't given willy-nilly to act and and use their authority. That's abuse. They have to be motivated by love, by seeking the good of their children. And that means they themselves have to be restrained 
by love if they fail to act That's in right. a loving way toward their children. And uh, something that we'll probably get into later, but they should also be held accountable for when they fail to do that to a right. certain degree. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have a whole chapter on that, yeah. which we'll get to. I'm Same sure. thing with churches. The church, yeah. is, uh, the church is given the keys of the kingdom. That's the symbol of the authority we have. And uh, we're to use those keys only, especially in cases of church discipline, uh, in the name of love. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, what I'm ultimately getting at here in a lot of ways is a bigger question about authority. Uh, I'm discussing the question of authority, particularly in the context, not even of government, but a sliver of government, which is criminal justice. But I think the principles are the same. Our obligation as Christians is to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That phrase is repeated eight times in scripture. And I believe it is the most repeated phrase in scripture. Uh, it is it is central to Christian identity. It is central to Christian ethics. I read a lot of Christian ethicists and over and over Christian ethicists of all stripes recognize that Christian ethics begins with the obligation to love God and to love neighbor as ourselves. And many of them begin the discussion where I ultimately began the discussion, which, was this, which is the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, why don't we talk about that a little sure. bit? Sure. Uh, I wonder if some people might say that you are eisegeting that parable. Yeah. So I'm not. <laughs> uh, at least if I, if I will say this, if I am, so is uh, yeah. pretty much every other Christian ethicist out there. Okay. So it's an interesting story in Luke 10. A, a lawyer stands up, we're told, uh, which I, I lo- think, think is a great introduction here. A lawyer oh, stands up, yeah. an expert in the New Testament or in the Old uh, Testament law, yeah. and says, to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers a question in a Socratic method with a question. What's the law say? Mm-hmm. You tell me. And interesting answer that the lawyer gives. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think quoting Deuteronomy 5. And love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19. So he takes two verses and pulls them out seems that he's saying this. these two things seem to summarize everything the law is getting at. And Jesus said, you got that right. Yeah. Um, uh, the, fir- the first and second table of the Ten Commandments, yeah. right? Love God and love your love neighbors. Neighbor, yeah, yeah, right. It, it, he's rightly perceiving that those two phrases capture the entirety of the Old Testament law, yeah. the, the sense of it. And which the, is really bad news. Which is bad news. And he recognizes it's yeah. bad news, the lawyer who asked, because it then says— uh, so Jesus says, you've answered rightly, go and do this yeah. and you'll have eternal life. Not go and try to do it, right. not go and give it a good effort, not give it a good college try, not do it more than you don't do it, not do it better than some other people you know who do it. Right. Go and do this and you will receive and you will live. Yeah. And the the again, the lawyer knows exactly what he's saying. I'm not eisegeting because you can see from his response that he knows that's exactly right. what's being said, that it's being put out there as an absolute standard because it says in the next verse, and he, seeking to justify himself. He says, was put on who, the defensive, yeah. He knew this is a standard yeah. that, boy, if I'm going to live up to this, what, what he says is, who's my neighbor? Right. In other words, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to personally... Uh, in every instance, love my neighbor as as myself, then we need to shrink who the neighbors are. Mm. Because I like the guy on my left-hand side, he mows his lawn, and the guy on the right, he's great. He gives me a gift every Christmas. 
The guy out back, back to our neighbor, the guy never cuts his lawn. Mm-hmm. And he's always letting his dog run into my yard. Yeah. And so you can see the wheel spinning where he's saying, I've got to shrink who the neighbors are. Uh, and so that's where Jesus responds with a parable that in that day would have been shocking. Mm. He picks the most reviled person in their culture, the most reviled people group in that culture, and holds him up as the hero of the story of the Good Samaritan, where the most, the most religious people, the most revered people walk by a situation where someone needs help, and the most reviled person that that lawyer could have imagined is held up as the hero who helps. Mm. And then Jesus flips the question and says, who was a neighbor? In other words, the lawyer wanted to know, who is, who is the neighbor, neighbor I have to yeah, help? Right. And Jesus said, who acted like a neighbor? Mm. In other words, he's flipping it and saying, your, your obligation is not to figure out who others are. Your obligation is to, to yourself be a neighbor. Yeah. Not sit here and try to pick out like which people groups or which individuals do I rank as the ones I should help or must help. He says, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Right. I want you to be a neighbor. Uh, so it's really interesting. And you might say, what's any of that have to do with criminal justice? And what's really interesting is that I mentioned there's eight instances in scripture in which we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Mm-hmm. The one that's being quoted there by this lawyer from Leviticus 19 is, re- is first invoked in scripture in the context of a legal justice system. Right. A few verses prior to this, in Leviticus 19, it says, do no injustice in court, show no partiality, do not seek revenge, but love, love your, your neighbor. neighbor as yourself. Yeah. In other words, I'm not drawing a connection between this obligation to love and a justice system that's not in Scripture. In fact, it's in the first use of the idea right. in Scripture. It then gets repeated over and over, interestingly repeated in Romans 13, repeated in James by Jesus' brother, repeated multiple times in uh, in the Gospels, I think one time in Galatians, it's coming up over and over and over. It is the central obligation of our ethical lives to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes. And that's, first of all, yes, that's better exegesis than most of the people critiquing you for eisegesis because it's actually pulling from the original source material in, in the Pentateuch. Help me help me think through how I am a neighbor, not not who is my neighbor, yeah. right? We got that settled. Right. How help are me, you going to be a neighbor? Yeah, help me think through how I can be a neighbor to a judge, to a jury, to a DA, to... Yeah. Yeah, yeah so you, if you look back, it's interesting that when these commands to love our neighbor as ourselves were written, they were written um, to a people who at the time, in the New Testament at least, were yeah. under Roman rule. Yeah. They weren't, and in the Old Testament, they were under a monarchy. Yeah, yeah, under a monarchy. And so our moral obligation is different in different governmental structures. If a, gov- if a king does something I don't like that I think is unjust, my options are violent revolt, which may or may not work, yeah. <laughs> or pray which is what scripture always commends. Pray for those who are in authority that you might live quiet and peaceable lives. Yeah. Right? He always, scripture always commends prayer, but it doesn't only commend prayer. Uh, we actually have other tools at our disposal that the New Testament audience couldn't have imagined, probably. Yeah. And so 
that creates on me a moral obligation. But it's, sorry, what are those tools? I can vote. Ah. Uh, I can vote either in elections. I can vote as a juror. Again, things that, that Jesus' audience wouldn't have had available to them, but that we do. And that creates a moral obligation on us. We are in democracy creates moral proximity is the language of of moral philosophers. It's actually the concept that's embodied in the story of the Good Samaritan. His, he was called on to help the person whose path he crossed, right, yeah. not the person whose path he didn't cross. Even the rich man in Lazarus, right? He walks out and the poor man's at his gate. He's right. not responsible for caring for all the poor people in the world, but this right. poor man's at his gate. Right. I have an obligation to love everyone, but as a finite person, my ability right. to act on that love is different. I want the well-being of everybody, or I should as a Christian, but my ability to effectuate that uh, is different. Yeah. My ability, and, and thus my obligation is different. Okay. And so democracy creates a relationship between me and the government right. that creates moral, proc that is morally proximate. It creates moral proximity. It creates moral responsibility on my part to act uh, to control those who are purporting to act in my name. In right. other words, in the United States, the, govern the government is of the people. Right. It is empowered by the people. Its authority comes from God, but its power comes from us. Yes. We grant it that authority each election. We say we want these people to act on our behalf with the sword. We don't think of it always in those terms. Right. But yeah. when I elect a DA, I am handing him a sword. Right. When I elect... A mayor, I am handing her a sword mm -hmm. through the police department. When I elect a president or a governor, I'm handing him or her the sword. And, and because I've handed them the sword, I have an ob a moral obligation to ensure that if they are not exercising the sword justly, that I do what I can to take it back yeah. and give it to someone else. So we, I, that all makes perfect sense. Nevertheless, in this cultural moment, there is some confusion about the extent of our moral proximity. Uh, just take the internet, for example, yep. right? The internet will show us an injustice or a perceived injustice yep. from across the, uh, across the state, across the country, maybe even across the world. Yep. And it will make us feel like we have to move, we have to act, we have to do something about that. Yep. Is there a sense in which because of technology, uh, are we've become closer to each other and therefore we're more uh, the proximity is 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 tighter or is that an illusion well i guess i would say that our paths can cross with people who have suffered harm in a virtual way that again was inconceivable in christ's day right right i can know about i can come across in a sense in at least in a knowledge sense uh, injustice is done to others, whether in a courtroom or during a police stop or otherwise, through the internet, through yeah. through social media. And a lot of good has come from that. And good can come from that. Yeah. Uh, so that knowledge can create obligations. Now, again, I may, if there's a uh, an injustice in the court system in Oklahoma, uh, in Oklahoma State Court or in Oklahoma local police officer. I have very little moral proximity to that. Right. I'm not a resident of Oklahoma. Right. I can't vote in Oklahoma. It doesn't mean I can do nothing. Right. I mean, I'm writing a book because I care about people in Oklahoma as much as I care about people in my home state. But right. what I can do in my home state is different than what I can do in Oklahoma. Right. 
In Oklahoma, I can write a book and try to persuade other Oklahomans. Uh, in Virginia, I can write a book and try to persuade other Virginians, and I yeah. can vote. Yeah, that's right. And so I have more tools at my disposal depending on my physical proximity to the situation. But my knowledge of situations in states other than my own yeah. is part of what motivated me to write the book. Some techno-ethicists have, have talked about this phenomenon wherein because I have greater access to knowledge and there's a perceived increase in moral proximity, it actually reduces my capacity and even desire yeah. to serve where I am actually really most morally proximate, right? Yeah. I'm so worked up doing stuff on the internet, trying to get things changed all around the world that like, I didn't go vote for my DA. I didn't investigate yeah. my own mayor in my yeah. own city. That's an interesting observation. I hadn't really considered that, that we can, because we are people of finite resources, we have to think about prioritizing yes. situations where we have the greatest moral obligation. And we can end up, interesting observation you make, we can end up burning time yeah. on things where we can do very little right. and overlooking yeah. time, wasting time and overlooking opportunities for things we could do quite a bit. Yeah. And we already tend to do this, uh, I think, when we're at our best interpersonally, right? You have hopefully your family and right. then your church family. Right. And and then very often what what you hear people saying now nowadays is you have to learn how to say no and prioritize those who matter most. Same thing here when we're talking about fighting for justice. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say that's slightly different. I don't like yeah. the concept of those who matter most. Mm. Right. I think that Good Augustine yeah. says this that um, we have an obligation to love all people equally, meaning to to wish and desire right. and work for, at least wish and desire the good of all people equally. Yeah. My finite ability right. to work, to, to actually act on that will be prioritized. So right. I based don't- Based on- Based on yeah. my physical or relational proximity. So my obligation to love my wife, to seek her good is higher than it is to seek your good. Right. But or a stranger I, on the street. But I desire yeah. your good right, yeah. as much as I desire the good of my wife. But because you're not my wife and, and because we don't live in the same state, and so I'm not even proximately, physically proximately close to you, my ability today to day to promote your good is more limited. Hmm. But my desire for your good is should be equal to that of my wife though I recognize other people will have to intervene day to day to help seek your good. Yeah. Let's get back to the the justice system and some of the various components. You say that uh, criminal law scholars debate the proper objectives of the criminal law. And when they do, they typically focus on these areas. Retribution. Uh, as, I, as I say the word, can you just give us a one yeah. or two sentence riff Retribution on it? is you did wrong, you deserve harm. Uh, to feel pain in response. Okay. You, refer, you deserve some punishment in response. Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation, the idea of changing you, making you into a person who won't do wrong in the future. Uh, deterrence. Deterrence is to discourage you from doing wrong, either you specifically from doing wrong in the future or discourage other people who have not done wrong from deciding to do wrong in the future. And incapacitation. Incapacitation is to physically prevent you from doing wrong, either by imprisoning you or executing you. Can we really do all of these things at the same time? I think that it's the wrong way to think about what we're trying to do. Okay. And that's what I, this is the language that criminologists use. 
when I was in criminal law in my very first semester of my first year in law school, we talked about those as being the goals of criminal justice. And what I'm arguing is that the goal of criminal justice is, is to love people, meaning to seek their good. And it may be that we seek their good by deterring them. It may be that we seek their, their good by incapacitating them. It may be that we seek their good by rehabilitating them. But the goal is to seek their good. The goal okay. is to love them. And there may be different means for different criminals and different victims in terms of right. how we seek their good. Because when you say love them, in that case, you're talking about the accused or maybe even perhaps the guilty. Yeah. But we also have to take into account the victims in society. You do a good job throughout the book I, saying we I have want to, to love all, all three my of neighbors. Right. right? I, I actually try, I've tried to emphasize neighbors, plural. Right. Right. It is not love only crime victims. Listen, we should love crime victims. That's going to look very different than what it would mean to love a criminally accused. And you make an important point, a criminally convicted. Right. It's not like, well, we we love them only while it's alleged. Right. Um, and then we quit loving them once right. it's proven. Guilty. Once it's guilty. Loves okay, out the window. Done yeah. loving. Yeah. That's The point is the love will look different for different people in those different stages of the justice system. But the goal should ultimately for us as Christians be to seek their well-being. And that is, I think, hard, not hard for us to get our heads around when it comes to crime victims. I think it is much harder, at least for, I'll speak for myself, and I suspect I'm not unusual in this regard, much harder to think about how do I love people who have done wrong. Mm. Uh, but that is, in fact, our obligation. Christ is not ambiguous about this. Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. He's not saying to despitefully use and persecute our people excluded from the neighborhood right, right. of love. As I was reading your book, I, I kept feeling like, because this is just life in a fallen world, right? Mm -hmm. We're juggling 15 different things. Yeah. Some of the things we're juggling are, are, are uh, hacky sacks. Right. Some of the things we're juggling are chainsaws, right? right. Uh, but we know, and you say that it's, it's unbecoming of a Christian to be utopian, right? You have to be a realist. Yeah. We have to understand that we're that this is a really hard thing that we're doing. And this quote in particular, uh, I thought was really helpful. You said, to insist that the only acceptable system of justice is a system that never he uh that never has wrongful convictions would be for all intents and purposes to demand the abolition of criminal justice, which is itself an injustice. Now there, you're just specifically talking about wrongful convictions. Right. But the idea behind, the principle behind that is uh, we're going to mess stuff up and we're not going to be able to balance all these things perfectly in a fallen world. Right. But the solution then cannot be, let's just do away with the criminal justice system entirely. Right. So I'm, I think anyone who reads this book will come away with the conclusion that I am an Augustinian through and through. Okay. I Meaning I have a very healthy belief in the fallenness of human nature. That drives how I think about life. It drives how I think about government. You'll see it drives how I think about criminal justice. Okay. That the people who are governing are themselves fallen. And that means they will make mistakes because they're just fallen people, right. even desiring to do well. And they will make mistakes out of malice. And yeah. so there's a, there, I think there could be a side of this. And you, I, I think you, you see some glimmers of that going on now. We see the abuses by police that are publicized mm -hmm. and are on our news. 
And some people just want to do away with it. Right. But that perpetuates its own injustice. Right. That we can, we could solve, I suppose, for the injustice of unjustified police shootings by not having police. We would cause different injustices, which are anarchy and harm to victims. And so the, the question we've, we've got to wrestle with is, how do I, as best I can in a fallen world, solve for both of those? Yeah. How do I avoid wrongful convictions and yet protect the, the society? Right. In other words, we could lower the standard of proof in order to make sure we get more guilty people. Right. We could say we're not going to require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, more likely than not is sufficient. If you're 51% sure, that's enough. That would probably increase our ability to, to sweep in more guilty people. It would also sweep in more innocent people. Mm -hmm. So, But then you say, okay, well, let's raise the standard of proof. Well, that means some guilty people are going to get away with it, mm -hmm. um, but we'll reduce the number of innocent people mm -hmm. who are wrongly convicted. And this is the struggle of life in a fallen world. This is the struggle of life with government administered by sinners, government administered by, by people who are not who are finite. Right. And it's not just sin. That it's not just us. sin. It's just it's, finiteness. Yes, in fact, right. I think Oliver O'Donovan had a great quote where he said something like, "The greatest cause of injustice is just human limitation." Mm -hmm. He said something to that effect. That some of it is we're just. I don't have a time machine. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not clairvoyant. I'm not a mind reader. And all of those 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 deficiencies in mm -hmm, me mm -hmm. will limit my ability to solve crime. Our non-godness. Yeah, I'm yeah. Not, my non-godness means I I wasn't there to see what happened on that street mm -hmm. corner five months ago. Yeah, I've got to trust other people telling me to the best of their uh, flawed ability yeah. what happened. Yeah, and then I have to evaluate: Are they telling the truth? And do I really have the capacity to evaluate that? And I know they're sure they saw this, but did they really see that? Even if they're trying their best to remember. And, and all of these human limitations, then you layer on top of that sin um, that can infect us and, and, and skew our motivations, yeah. our, our desires, our, our, our scheming. Can, you know, people can scheme because maybe they didn't like so-and-so and they want to frame them. Like you've always got, you know, but just, just take our human limitations. Yeah. And that means we've got to figure out how much error we're willing to tolerate. Right. And I, and I think that that probably even jars some people. Like, you mean we're willing to tolerate some error? And, and to be clear, I'm not saying the error's okay. Right. I'm saying it's inevitable. Right. The question is, how much of that error are we morally entitled to allow to occur? All right, so what's the answer? The answer is, just war theory is helpful. Okay. Uh, and this is what I discuss in, um, that's what I invoke in the book is just war theory. Just war theory has for years wrestled with the question of collateral damage. That's mm -hmm. what it's called in just war theory, meaning even a just war carried out for a just cause and carried out with care yeah. will inevitably result in the killing of innocent civilians. That right. will happen. The only way to avoid killing innocent civilians, any, is to not conduct war. Right which would result in its own injustice. Countries would invade other people, torture mm -hmm. other people, oppress other people. Uh, if we just say we're never going to go to war because we could have some civilians killed. 
Yeah. So the question is, what's the tolerance, the moral tolerance for that collateral damage? And the test, a test that's de- that's been offered in the context of of just war theory is the all reasonable means test. And the all reasonable means test says you have to use all reasonably available means to avoid collateral damage. Uh, if you use, the idea being, if you use all reasonably available means, yeah. you are not intending to harm others, right? right? If, you, if you just think about it, if I don't use all reasonably available means to avoid collateral damage, I am in effect saying, I'm perfectly fine with killing innocent people. Right, that's right. right. Because if there's a reasonably available means that I could use, yeah. I would use it if I cared about yeah. the innocent people. And so that, that's the idea. It ultimately derives from the doctrine of double effect, which began with Aquinas. I discussed that and give some explanation for yeah. lay folks. But the, I think the way to think about it is the all reasonable means test. Can, can and we, I want to apply that to criminal justice and right. say, are we using all reasonable means to avoid uh in in uh, avoid punishing innocent people, uh, you know, are we designing a system? Are we operating a criminal justice system that uses all reasonable means that we know about that we set? We could say we could afford this, we could implement this. This is feasible in our cultural moment, in our scientific moment. Uh, we could implement this particular procedure, and we could reduce the number of of unjust convictions of innocent people. Right. And my argument is if we have a reasonable means available to us, we have a moral obligation to implement it. So my my pastor impulse is kicking in right yeah. now. We're speaking very conceptually, yeah. right? Let's just take it in war, all reasonable means. Yeah. Uh, let's say we know for a fact that there are terrorists who are operating in a, in a civilian error uh, excuse me, in a civilian area, yeah. but we got to go in there and bomb them. There's yeah. just no way. They 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 chose that civilian location because they thought it would keep them safe, but we have to go in there and bomb them. What do we do? We send out flyers. We we send out radio signals. We even access people via their cell phones and say, get out of the area. Terrorists are there. We're going to bomb them. Yeah. And then if anyone is injured or killed, we can say we did everything we could possibly do to Reasonably. protect them. I yeah, think it's reasonably, reasonably not right. possibly. I do ah, think that there's okay. a. it is all reasonable means. Every, not everything possible. Not everything possible because one of the things possible would be don't do a war. Okay, all right. right? So once you, once you say all possible means, you can say, yeah. well, just don't fight. So yeah. it has to be all reasonable means, meaning what can I, what is available to me right. in my cultural moment? If I'm going to punish crime, what is available, or if I'm going to conduct war, what is reasonably available to me as a means to minimize the collateral damage. So, okay, uh, on the spot example there, maybe not the best one and not the best wording, but let's take that to the criminal justice system. Can right. you can you give us like a boots on the ground example of reasonable means? Sure. So I, I also, but I will do that. I want to make okay. one caveat, which is what I'm not doing in my book and what I, I don't want to be here, heard doing here is saying Christians must all agree that this reasonable means is necessary. What I want Christians okay. to agree is that we must use all reasonable means. Okay, sort of a principial agreement, not right. necessarily the but outworking. But application, Christians yeah. of good faith can disagree That's over right. this. This is, this is the stuff of increased learning. This is the stuff of criminologists helping mm-hmm. us, sociologists helping us, uh, police officers and prosecutors with experience helping us sort out the specifics. And Christians of good faith can disagree with me on this. Okay. And I don't, I don't think that that means they're unethical or uninterested in, in, uh, 
in Christian life and Christian ethics, I do believe we should all be able to agree that we have an obligation to take all reasonable means. And then so exactly what is reasonable, we may disagree We should have on. discussions yeah. about that. Okay. I can tell you some examples of what I think are, are all reasonable means. Hit me. We, we have a complicated justice system that has complicated procedural and evidentiary rules, and the government is represented by a, an experienced, trained advocate. In that system, it would not, we would be doing something less than taking all reasonable means to achieve accurate verdicts if we left a poor individual unrepresented by a lawyer who knows how to navigate the procedural and evidentiary rules and is likewise a trained advocate. In other words, I think if you had a system that said, as we did in the United States until 1963, Mm -hmm. where we said the government gets a lawyer to help it navigate the case and the defendant doesn't get a lawyer to help him or her navigate the case. You just said that like like it's common knowledge though. Right. What, what I said, what that, that you get a lawyer? Yeah, because that blew my mind when I read it in your book. Yeah, I mean, so I think we again, this our knowledge of the legal system often comes from watching TV. We've seen yeah. all types of people arrested on TV, and the, the what they're told rights, is you have the right to yeah. remain silent. If you give up that right, anything you say can use will be used against you. You have the right to speak with an attorney, right? That's included in the right. the Miranda rights. And, it's in the Constitution. Well, so that's a, it's an interesting <laughs> question. So right. until 1960, there is in the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution a guarantee of a right to counsel. Mm-hmm. You have the right to counsel in a criminal case. But the Bill of Rights, including the Sixth Amendment, uh, until 1963 was interpreted not to apply to state criminal prosecutions. This right. is important because like 90 plus percent of criminal cases, I think 95% of criminal cases are brought by states, right. not by the federal government. Right. And so in that small sliver of criminal cases brought by the federal government, you had a right to a lawyer from the founding 1791 when the yeah. Bill of Rights was adopted. But in state criminal cases, as late as 1963, multiple states did not provide for the right to counsel or certainly not the right to counsel in every case. Mm-hmm. And so- Famously, in a case called Gideon versus Wainwright, coming out of Florida, the Supreme Court ruled that the Sixth Amendment right to counsel also applied to states under the 14th Amendment uh, of the U.S. Constitution. And so now criminal defendants have a right to counsel. We can talk about whether our country's living up to that, and I'm right. sure we will. Yeah. But the, that's, a, I think, an example of how if we didn't prov- provide poor people who couldn't afford to hire a lawyer with a lawyer provided by the state, we would be taking something less than all reasonable means to ensure accurate verdicts. And just to close the loop on this, so Gideon versus Wainwright, Clarence Earl Gideon is prosecuted in Panama City, Florida in 1961. He's convicted of robbing a pool hall of a handful of change and five bottles of beer and soda. He's convicted in a one-day trial, sentenced to five years in prison, his case goes up to the Supreme Court. He does a handwritten petition representing himself to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court appoints a lawyer to represent him in the Supreme mm-hmm. Court and rules in 1963 that he, as someone being prosecuted in Florida State Court, had the right to an attorney to represent him, which he did not have in his first trial because he couldn't afford it. His case goes back to Florida in front of the same judge in the same courthouse, again, a one-day trial, this time with the lawyer, and he's found not guilty. Right. And so I think you see a very clear example of how if we don't use all reasonable means, people will get run over not because they're not not because they're not innocent, 
but because they don't know how to prove their innocence in a complicated legal system with rules of evidence and right. squaring off against a lawyer. So I think that's just one example of how the all reasonable means test applies in the context of criminal justice. Going back to maintaining the balance, you say that acquitting the guilty and convicting the innocent are both unjust, but they're not equally unjust. This, right. this reminded me of conversations that I've had with people who are critical of evangelicals for only being pro, very narrowly pro-life, mm -hmm. right? And they'll, they'll, they'll compare abortion, death of 70 million babies, right? right with uh, immigration stuff. Right. And let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just say that all of their uh, immigration critiques are accurate, right? Right. Uh, those two things don't weigh out equally on the scales of justice, accurate. even if they are both unjust. Right. Right. Uh, so so can you speak to this? Acquitting yeah. the, uh, the guilty and convicting the innocent, they're both unjust, but they're not equally unjust. Right. So remember where, where we started in this discussion, I said you can adjust the burden of proof yeah. and you will either increase or decrease the number of guilty and or innocent people who are convicted or That's acquitted, right? Yeah. right? So, and, and, and both are injustices. If guilty people are not convicted, that is an injustice. That's right. If innocent people are convicted, that is an injustice. Mm -hmm. What I say there is those are not equally unjust. Okay. And the reason I say that is this, that scripture, all authority is God's authority. Mm -hmm. And whatever authority in any realm of life that we have is only the authority he gave us. Delegated. Right? It's delegated authority. Yeah. It starts in Genesis 1, have dominion over the earth. Right. It, you see it again in Romans 13. There is no authority that other than the governing authorities have no authority other than from God. So the question is, what authority did he give me? What authority did he give our governing authorities who act on my behalf? Right. And he gave them the authority to act against the guilty. Okay. He did not give them the authority to act against the innocent. So they are committing an injustice if they act against the innocent. They are obligated- If they bring the sword to bear bring, against- Bring right. the sword to bear right. against the innocent. They are yeah. committing an injustice. They are taking authority from God that he did not give them. What he gave me the authority to do, what he gave our governing authorities to do, what he gave you the authority and me the authority as voters to do, is to give the sword to the government to be used against the guilty. Right. And if and that is not an obligation that somehow, uh, and, and so I have been given a limited authority, um, and I have to use that against the guilty if I'm a, I'm abusing the authority given, if I extend it against the innocent. Uh, and so I think that's what I'm trying to get at here is that God has not tasked me, tasked, he hasn't tasked government with solving every injustice in, in history. Okay. Right. What we're assured is that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, yeah. and his kingdom will have no end. He has given us temporal authority that is necessarily limited. Okay. Let me, so let me give you an example of how what I mean when I say God has not tasked me with solving every injustice in okay. this life. He, in, in the Old Testament, and you see it repeated in the New Testament, uh, established a two-witness rule. Okay. A two-witness rule, meaning you cannot punish criminally, but on the testimony of two or three witnesses, you see this with regards to um, crimes in the Old Testament law. You see this with regard to accusations against elders in the New Testament. Yeah. Necessarily means that some crimes 
some wrongs will go unaddressed by us, okay. will go unaddressed by our authorities. In other words, what he's saying is, I have tasked you with solving and punishing certain offenses that can be clearly established. I have not, God is saying, given you authority to punish and, and not given you authority and thus not given you responsibility to punish crimes that cannot be clearly established. Right. I have, in other words, God has said, I give you no authority and thus no responsibility to punish crimes that can only be established on the testimony of one witness. Right. So, so I'm committing no wrong as a government official if I say, I can't prosecute that crime. There is only one witness. Right. It doesn't mean that there's not a wrong against the individual who was harmed. Right. Right. So if, if someone is robbed, but I only have one witness, and that's all I've got, I am not doing a wrong as a government official by not prosecuting that. The individual robbed has been done wrong. Right. But here's, the, here's where I could commit an injustice as a government official. If I say I'm going to prosecute that crime based on one witness, um, I'm committing a wrong even if I get the right person, and I'm risking a wrong of getting the wrong person. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm saying when I'm, what I'm trying to get at. It is not like we can just kind of pick, you know, am I going to over-prosecute? Am I going to under-prosecute? God has given authority and responsibility only for prosecuting, for punishing certain crimes, yeah. meaning ones that can be established by a sufficiently high and reliable proof. And the way that we establish that is by due process. Due process. Which you are clear to tell us that Scripture does not give us an exact recipe for. Right. It, it doesn't, and, 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 and I'm going to talk about that, but I, I think this idea that the government only has authority and responsibility to punish cr certain crimes provable to a certain degree is a critical concept to people to, for people to understand. Yeah. And as you point out, the way we ensure that we're applying that standard of accuracy, that standard of certainty that scripture puts in there is through process. Mm -hmm. Again, going back, I'm not clairvoyant. I don't have a time machine. I, I can't read minds. I can't judge hearts. All I can do is apply a process of, of introducing evidence and of testing evidence which is what the two witness system is. I think that well, that's one example. So what right. you may you, you noted, like scripture isn't a criminal code. Mm -hmm. it, it's so not. So you a, don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. I believe in the sufficiency oh, of scripture. Okay. I believe scripture lays down principles for yeah. us to apply in our context. General but, equity. General equity uh, from Westminster, from London Baptist Confession. But but my context is different than ancient Israel. Ancient Israel didn't have videotapes. They didn't have DNA evidence. They didn't have cell phone videos. And so what would be required to achieve certainty, uh, what we call beyond a reasonable doubt, certainty, right. right? Beyond a reasonable doubt, what that would, what evidence would satisfy that in ancient times is different than today. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but the, I think the point is you need a process that will yield accurate results. So let me give you an example that I give in the book. Okay. Imagine that I announce, I'm creating, an, I'm going to revamp the whole criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so I announce, good news, we require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you're like, great. And then I say, 
but the defendant can't cross-examine any witnesses, he doesn't get a lawyer, and he can't deliver an opening or closing statement. You'd be like, well, I, I mean, you know, I know you say you're requiring proof beyond a reasonable right. doubt, but that process doesn't give me confidence that right. we're going to get accurate results, yeah. right? Just to take a silly example. And so, and so that's what I'm saying is that the, you, it's not just about what standard are we announcing. We have to be certain. The, the way we're certain, the way we're accurate is by having a process right. that yields accuracy. And scripture refers to this. He who is first in his own cause seems just, but then his neighbor comes and searches him out, mm. right? The idea is everybody who talks first can be persuasive, right? It, but we test the evidence, searching him out. It, scripture speaks of the judges interrogating people in the gate. Same idea. What scripture acknowledges, it's not just the government tossing or the victimized a, a tossing evidence in and we just accept it. It's we put forward the evidence of guilt and we test that evidence through some process. I think scripture leaves open exactly what that process would look like. I don't think it has to be uniform in every right. culture and every in every era. But it does give us principles. But there, but that, we have. Yeah. It's driving at a process. You should have a process that allows for the testing and challenging of evidence. Right. Both cross-examining evidence that the government puts in and introducing evidence that contradicts yeah. what the government puts in. Uh, again, just with my pastor brain, I, I'm trying to make sense of this by way of analogy, and I just think of the regulative principle, right? Mm -hmm. The regulative principle doesn't say that God's word says exactly what has to happen on a Sunday morning when we gather for corporate worship. Right. It says, for example, that we should sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, yeah. congregational singing. The way that that will look from culture to culture, context to context, in the jungles of Peru to right. a sound system in America, that right. may differ, but as long as that's what we're trying to achieve, there's some freedom and flexibility there. Yeah, it's interesting. One of my readers referred to what I'm advancing as a regulative principle of criminal justice. And I think that's probably a fair analogy yeah. that I'm saying we're authorized to do what scripture authorizes us to do, but it gives us, rather than specifics, right. it gives us concepts yeah. and then leaves to us to work out the specifics in our cultural moment. Rather than giving us the exact notes, it kind of gives us like a cadence and a rhythm. Yeah. And what I think it says is, huh? I right. think what it says is accuracy is of critical importance right. to God. So whatever reasonable means you can use to establish accuracy. Right. Reasonable means use all reasonable means to allow for the testing of evidence to achieve accuracy. Okay. Right. So the accuracy and due process are linked. We want accurate results, but that only comes about through process. Yeah. And I'll tell, I'll say why, I'll just give an example of how I think we miss this sometimes. We've all heard stories on TV or read in the newspaper of, so uh, a person who had been convicted and spent decades in prison is years later exonerated. Mm -hmm. And everybody feels terrible about this. Yeah. Um, and rightly so. But what we don't pause too often, in, and when we initially say like, I hope he can sue. I, I hope he can sue too. Um, what I'm more concerned about is how did we? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. And almost always, the reason it happened was some defect in the process. Right. In other words, you can't give short shrift to the process up front and then act surprised when you get exonerations decades later. Right. Those are connected. 
And so if you rush to judgment and don't afford people adequate counsel, to take my one example, or don't allow for an adequate testing of the evidence, to take another example, then you shouldn't be surprised that having not followed those scriptural commands, it yields inaccurate results and injustices of its own. Right Now the state has borne the sword against someone they were not authorized to bear the sword against. Yeah. So whether we're talking about uh, establishing guilt, uh, the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, or we're talking about establishing reasonable means, we keep using the word reasonable, which yeah. has a built-in assumption, yeah. right? That we can all agree on that which is reasonable. I, I don't know that it, it, I think it actually probably has the opposite assumption, which okay. is that people are going to debate. Okay. what is reasonable. And I think- But we have to come to some conclusion together sure. on what is reasonable. Sure. I mean, I think that that's, um, that's going to be culturally driven. I think scripture, scripture is written to all the nations of the world, right? Okay. And what's going to be reasonable in a wealthy nation with sophisticated scientific technology uh, and scientific forensics is going to be different than a relatively undeveloped nation mm -hmm. that perhaps is poverty-stricken but might have a closer community where people know each other more. And so the risk yeah. of misidentification is different rather than our sort of yeah. atomistic society here and where we, we, we don't, you know, we live in somewhat impersonal environments, right? Yeah. So, so the point is we have high level principles, accuracy and process. The specifics will differ over time, yeah. but even in our culture, you and I might differ over what specifically is needed. How much do we have to spend on, Criminal defendant or criminal defense counsel for the poor, and you know what? That's the value of a democracy, right? We debate and discuss mm -hmm. as fellow citizens and as fellow Christians, um, and at the end of the day, we can say within some reasonable bounds, reasonable people can disagree. You know, yeah. within some bounds. If you want to tell me we're not going to give any money for defense counsel for the poor, I'm going to tell you that's a sin. Yeah, it's unreasonable. Right, it's yeah. unreasonable. It is unethical. It is not using all reasonable means. But if you want to tell me we're going to allocate X million dollars and I say, well, you should allocate X plus $2 million, that's a that's a debate that reasonable Christians can have and doesn't break my fellowship with you. Right. I'm not going to say you're sinning on that. I'm just going to say you're wrong in yeah. my estimation. Yeah. And I'm going to try to persuade you over time to come around to my view that we actually need to spend more money on this. So let's go back to where the government has actual authority, not not perceived authority, yeah. uh, but actual authority. Get, like I'm, I'm thinking, uh, dad, children, I have actual authority to spank my daughter, for example, if she does X, Y, or Z. If she does something that's not sin, right? Uh, and even if she does sin, not all sins that she commits maybe would necessarily merit the rod, Okay. So taking that, bringing it over into Romans 13, you, Paul says that the government has the ability to bear the sword against evil. Right. Nevertheless, not all evil should be punished by the sword. Yeah. So how do you make sense of that? Yeah. It's, well, I think some people might say all evil should be punished by the sword. Uh, mm -hmm. I think this is part of the Christian nationalism debate going on. I think there's a range of views to use the language of the Christian nationalism debate, can you punish the first table of the law, idolatry, uh, obligation to right. love God, honor the Sabbath? Can you punish that by state force or only the second table, which is directed toward our relations with our neighbors? Right. I, I, I think Christ, Christians disagree over that. I 
have, I guess, what would I, what I would describe as the Baptist or a Baptist view that even among Baptists, there's probably a, a range of views on this historically. So I would start with this concept, and I, I talk about this in chapter 10, I think it is, where we talk about defining crime. I start with this concept. Government is not the only institution God has created to stem the tide of evil. Okay. We've been right. talking about that. Right. Family, we can, right. church. Right. We can revert to right away, like, there's an evil. I really want it to stop. <coughs> Government must be the answer. Government's not the only institution God established to deal with evil. He established churches and pastors to preach against evil. Hmm. He established parents to teach against evil or discipline their children against evil. He established teachers at schools to teach against evil. Shame, we can shame as a culture people, as a cultural, just as a cultural way we operate in culture, we can shame people out of doing certain things and yeah. should. Yeah. Um, shame isn't always bad in that respect. No. Um, and, and so there are other means available. The question is, what are the evils that are so evil that we must use, or at least are authorized to use, coercive force of the state up to and including deadly force to stop? Uh, I think that's the first time I've heard you say that. What are the evils that are so evil that we must bring the sword against it? Yeah. Okay. I, I, think, that's the, I think that's really the question that is at the heart of this debate about Christian nationalism yeah. and really is a question at the core of criminal justice. When am I, what evils are so evil that God has morally authorized the state to use physically coercive force? Right. I don't think Romans 13 is saying all evils. I think it is saying only evils, and but but that, that doesn't mean all evils. Okay. So just to, maybe to back up to earlier in scripture, you see in Genesis 9, 6, God speaking to Noah in the Noahic covenant, whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Right? So you see an authorization there, even prior to the Old Testament law, a, a conferral on Noah and his descendants to use physically coercive force but only as to those who shed blood. Right. Now, I think that includes, you know, not only those who kill people, but also those who do other forms of physical harm against people. I right. think that's captured in that concept. But what's interesting there is he doesn't say, whoever steals a man's sheep, by man shall his blood be shed. Mm -hmm. Right. He, he limits the use of force in that conferral of authority to certain wrongs. Mm -hmm. And I, it's actually one of the things, the first evidences of sin that you see in the, children of Cain is that they have a disproportionate punishment for the crimes committed. Or at least Cain cl claims they do, yeah. right? And so he's he's sort of saying, this is too much for me to bear. He has in his mind this notion that there is some limitation yeah. on when force should or should not be used. And, and I think you see this when you continue through the Old Testament law. The use of physical force was permitted for certain things that we would consider crimes, certain wrongs, but not for others. Um, others were dealt with in different ways through financial restitution. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't, they, they didn't um, beat people for stealing a sheep, right? They right. Be beat people for engaging in physical violence against other people. They used corporal punishment, what I'm calling beating. And so I, I think what you see here is that the state's ability to act with force differs with regard to differing wrongs. 
Um, Say that again. The state's ability to respond with force yeah. differs okay. depending on different wrongs okay. being yeah. done. Yeah. Right. And so I think that, that's the proportionality. It's it's a proportionality concept. Um, but it's also, I think there's kind of a, a bigger concept, which is in some instances, you just aren't entitled to use physical force at all. And okay. and I think that is it, there's some there's some element of proportionality underlying that, which okay. is the way to respond to property crimes is not through is not through uh beatings or stonings or executions. Right. That is disproportionate. Perhaps the state can act, but it can't act in that way. Okay. And and so I think that that's that's what I'm I'm reading Romans 13 in light of this sort of flow of scripture up right, to that point, right. which it's not Paul not, didn't invent Romans 13 out of thin air. Right. And so when he says you can use the sword against evildoers, I think that's got to be understood against what we've seen described through scripture about the proportionality principle and the limitation on when government can use can bear the sword. So let's get into the sticky stuff. If the government has uh, the responsibility and authority to bear the sword against that which is evil, what do we do in a society where we are increasingly polarized about that which is evil? So I, I think for the most part, you know, that's not where the problems are with the criminal justice system. In other words, the things that are clearly within the scope of the moral authority to punish by criminal law, virtually every state publishes punishes. So let's just take marijuana, for example. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, murder's easy, right? Like yeah. everybody's agreeing on that and yeah. robbery and rape. Um, you know, drugs are an area where you see a shifting view in the United States. It is something that I think is morally wrong for a Christian to participate in, drug use. Uh, that doesn't answer the question, is it an evil that is within the government's realm to criminally punish? I think that's an issue that reasonable Christians could disagree about. Uh, I think there is some difficult line drawing in figuring out where does the evil that government must punish end and where does the evil that the government cannot punish begin. And I think reasonable Christians could disagree about, for example, is is drug possession, is drug use. Not They couldn't disagree about, I don't think, whether it's evil, but they could disagree about whether or not the government is authorized to punish that through the use of coercive force. Okay, so, uh, and maybe this is getting too theoretical in a way. You just tell me if this is getting too far away from the book, but I'm, I'm thinking more at a macro level. Yeah. Western civilization, downstream from Scripture, a biblical worldview, there's been some pretty horrendous inconsistencies, but by and large, we've been flowing down this stream. Yeah, uh, we're now sort of flowing away from that, right? And and the biblical worldview that has uh, undergirded our ethics up to this point, how we define that which is evil, and therefore what we can bring the sword against, uh, that's splintering, it's fracturing, and so we're all coming to this table in this pluralistic society with different perspectives about that which is evil. Uh, it. I think that what what somebody said to me after your presentation the other night was that makes me feel hopeless because if if justice is dependent upon us rightly defining evil and then therefore bringing the sword against it in the in the right way, uh, what are we going to do when it feels like in a hundred years we're going to be destroying each other trying to agree on that which is evil? 
Does that make sense? It does. And I think the answer to that is that Scripture doesn't offer us temporal hope. It offers us eternal hope. Uh, it directs us as Christians to follow Jesus now. And, and part of following Jesus is following Jesus with how we exercise our ability to influence political power. So it, 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 part of following Jesus is thinking about how we vote and how that impacts issues of justice here and now. But our hope isn't offered in Scripture as, and the government will be a solution. Right. Or it will be, not only that it won't be a perfect solution, there's not even really hope that it'll be much of a solution. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can, that doesn't mean I, I throw up my hands and go, well, I can't, I can't do everything or I can't do most things, so I'm going to do nothing. I'm going right. to, I have a moral obligation to help the man whose path I cross on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you make the argument that democracy gives us an yeah. obligation to yeah. do that. But, but, but scripture, scripture creates on me a moral obligation to act as I can in my limited capacity, a finite being in a fallen world. But scripture doesn't offer hope that that's the solution. This, okay. The hope is what we confess every Sunday morning as Christians around the world, that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and mm-hmm. his kingdom will have no end. The hope is that we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, you know, we, the hope we have is that, uh, behold, he will make all things new. Uh, that, at the end, that, no, that no murderer and no rogue prosecutor will, in the end, have the final say. Mm. Amen. And um, someone, uh, some Christians may disagree with your assessment of what Scripture promises in relation to hope and justice for the nations. Um, mm-hmm. Not all post-millennialists, but a certain kind mm-hmm. of post-millennialists would say, actually, no, we expect to move closer and closer towards justice as time goes on. Is yeah, that? Well, I mean, I, that's certainly true. You know, I think even post-millennialists confess that our ultimate hope, of course, right, is, right. So they they might think that we'll achieve more justice in this world. I am, as an Augustinian, concerned that our that if we're too zealous, if we're overzealous in achieving justice in this world, we will commit injustice in the process. So utopianism, bad. I, I think that we should recognize that we are fallen people and we are given limited authority, I think, because we are fallen people. We are not here. We are not given the authority or the mandate to solve every crime. Uh, and I think we have to accept that. It, again, I go back to my two witnesses example. We were not given the authority or the mandate to solve every crime. Some crimes have only one witness. Yeah. And those are outside of human jurisdiction. And in those, we have to trust God that he will, in the end, make all wrongs right. We, can, we should, in those instances, seek to comfort and help and assist those who are wronged, recognizing we will be unable to punish the wrongdoer in this life. Mm-hmm. So breaking the flow a little bit, we've been sort of walking through the book without saying so chapter by chapter thus far. Uh, we're kind of in chapter seven right now. You make a comment in chapter seven that is sort of an aside, but I feel like it, it's so insightful. I just want us to pause and, and talk about it. You say that rampant crime in your community and your experiences with law enforcement may leave you conflicted. What's the conflict? You may be both worried about crime and wary of the police. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I think that's just another example 
and maybe for some people a real life example of life in a fallen world, right? Which is that we know we need government. We know we need law enforcement. We know God or, has ordained law enforcement and that without it, we'd have anarchy and injustice that flows from that. People being victimized by roving bands of criminals. But at the same time, we know that people can abuse authority, both prosecutors and police. Uh, that, so, that, that while police and prosecutors can act for good, they can also act for ill. Yeah. And so I think people in some communities feel particularly conflicted about that. I think we should all feel conflicted about that, looking at the human condition and knowing right. that when we authorize people to act, we need to restrain those people from acting unjustly, that they, there are no angels. Right. Uh, if men were angels, uh, as, as Madison said in Federalist 51, we wouldn't need government. Mm. And that the challenge that Madison recognized in Federalist 51, though he didn't state it in biblical terms, is really a, a cha- an Augustinian challenge which is how do we restrain the restrainers? How do we govern the governors? Mm. How do we ensure that those tasked to do justice don't use the power we give them to do injustice in the process? So again, me just trying to bring this back down uh, a little out of the conceptual into the um, boots on the ground. I'm thinking about the stop and frisk laws that were passed in New York in the 80s and 90s and how that was really born of a community uh, desperate for police to to come in and fix this. Right? Same thing right. with crack laws, right? right. The, the Congressional Black Caucus. But that ended up leading to other issues, and and so the conflict was there. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, you see, this is this is the tug and you know the pull and the tug, right? It's the we we want to we we see a a crisis, right? Crack epi- epidemic in the '80s, right? So we want to solve it, rightly so. Yeah, it is tearing communities apart. So we empower police, more police officers, but that has consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do that, some of them good, bringing crack epidemic down; some of them bad, destroying families and communities. Right. Um, and so the the effort to save communities can actually harm communities. Yeah. And, and I think that's just one example that, that there's a constant effort we have to be engaged in of calibrating to say, are we doing more harm than good? Are we restraining the people who we authorize to do good? Are we restraining them from doing wrong? Yeah. Um, are we going beyond the authorization that God has given us? This makes me think of you, when you go to the doctor for a particular ailment and they prescribe you a medication that medication has these side effects, side effects, collateral damage, right? It's it's, this is all that, it's that same discussion, right? Right. Different analogies, but yes, we have to protect against the collateral damage. And part of that is the all reasonable means. Part of that is the recognition that God just didn't task us with solving certain wrongs. I think that we have an overinflated view of ourselves in some respects, that our job is to solve all wrongs. All authority is God's. We have only what he's delegated. Right. He has not delegated to us any authority, any authority to solve one witness crimes. Mm-hmm. For those crimes where there is entirely and only one witness, no other evidence, we have no authority to act. To, to act in those situations is to wrench power out, is to try to wrench power out of God's hands. Right. Yeah. And we end up committing injustices in the process. 
Okay, that's that's helpful. L- let's get back to chapter seven and the in the flow here. You talk uh, after critiquing Rawls's larger uh, model of utilitarian justice. You come to acknowledge one very helpful thing that he contributed to this conversation, which is the veil of ignorance mm-hmm. thought experiment. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So what's interesting is I think at times we can look at people and say their thought or their writing in this particular area is generally wrong. And so that means they have nothing good to say. And that doesn't follow. So I can disagree with Rawls' concept of justice and yet recognize that there's an insight in his book, A Theory of Justice, that I think is useful for Christians, can be repurposed by Christians, could be modified slightly and used by Christians. And so he refers to something called the original position or the the veil of ignorance. And the idea is that if, if, you st- if you tried to make decisions by engaging in a thought experiment where you say, I'm going to assume I don't know what my lot in life will be. I don't know whether I'll be poor or rich. I don't know whether I'll be powerful or weak. I don't know which community I'll live with I don't, or, or in. I don't know what family I will have or not have. If I just start from a, I don't know how my life will turn out perspective, what rules would I want in place not knowing how it's going to work out, Okay. right? I, I sort of describe it as my dad's method of dividing pie between myself and my brother when I was a kid. Okay. There's, there's two pieces of pie. There's, a, there's enough pie left for two pieces. And so my dad would say to one of my brothers, you get to cut, and then your brother gets to choose after you cut. Oh, so, okay. so my brother Mark could cut. I get to choose first among the slices. I mean, at that point, my brother's got a protractor out there, right? <laughs> like, I mean, we're we're trying to get microscopic yeah. precision on equality of pie pieces right. because the other person's going to get picked. His first. self-interest right. incentivizes. So him this is fairness. this is yeah. the the original position okay. as done by my dad with pie. This is the veil of ignorance. Yeah. If you don't know which piece of pie you're going to get, how are you going to slice the pie? Yeah, and I think that's what. We can repurpose that by in the in the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you didn't know whether you're going to be criminal defendant or mm-hmm. criminally vic- criminally victimized, mm-hmm. how are you going to divide the pie, so to speak, from behind that veil of ignorance, not knowing which your what which lot in life you will have in the criminal justice system? How would you design the system? Yeah, and so. Um, it's not defining um, ethics as utilitarian. It's saying as we apply Christ's command to love our neighbor as ourselves, we can use the thought experiment that that Rawls put out there, which is to say, okay, now I'm trying to answer the question, what is reasonable? Right. right? You mentioned before that Christians could disagree about what are all reasonable means. Yeah. Well, here's a thought experiment to help us discuss that as yeah. Christians. How would you define it? If you, how would you define reasonable if you didn't know how it would, which way it would apply to you as victim or accused? So let me give a, an example. Okay. If you thought you're in, t- you had zero chance of ever being criminally accused, right, and only the chance of being criminally victimized. Yeah, I suppose you would slice the pie, so to speak. Yeah, as lowering the burden of proof. Right, right, because you'd want more people prosecuted. You want the people who've done you wrong prosecuted. And, and flip side, if you thought you had zero chance of being criminally victimized, mm-hmm. 
but a pretty good chance of being criminally accused, yeah. you'd be like, I want like absolute proof, scientific beyond any doubt, right? You'd want more procedural protections, higher standard of proof. The question is though, what if you don't know which of those you'll be and you could be either? Yeah. Well, that forces you to say, well, if I'm a crime victim, I don't want crime victims getting away. But if I'm a crime, I'm a criminally accused, I want to make sure I've got an ability to defend myself. And yeah. now all of a sudden you're forced to say, okay, what's the fair midpoint mm-hmm. uh, in that system that protects me, whether I'm crime victim or criminally accused, if I'm slice A or slice B yeah. of the pie. And so I think that's that thought experiment that he that it is a useful one that we can repurpose. I can say Rawls is wrong in his conception of what ethics is, uh, justice is fairness, as he calls it. Mm-hmm. But that, but in applying Christ's definition of what is justice, yeah. Scripture's definition of justice, Rawls' thought experiment can assist me in helping to discuss with my fellow believers and my fellow citizens how we should design the system to achieve all reasonable means of accuracy. I found that so helpful. Very useful, brother. Moving into chapter eight, we start talking about uh, the nature of punishment and even how punishment can communicate love. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is an insight um, that I think I read from Oliver O'Donovan, who's an ethicist. Um, and just war theorist at Oxford, a Christian brother, uh, Anglican. Um, and, and he made the point, I think it was in his book, Ways of Judgment, that, that punishment serves a role of communicating. In other words, what we have to do when we operate a criminal justice system is not only say, this person did wrong and this person did right, or this person was harmed and this person did the harm, but we also have to say how wrong it was. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, there's a difference between jaywalking and capital murder. Right. Right. Those are different wrongs. They maybe they're both wrong, or or uh, stealing, uh, shoplifting a candy bar, uh, and and rape. Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law. Exactly. Yeah, right? right. There's there's differing crimes, and we would be inaccurate. Going back to my point about accuracy. Part of accuracy is speaking accurately not only about that's about the fact that something was wrong, but speaking accurately about how wrong it is. Mm -hmm. So when we give someone who's committed a cold-blooded murder a 10-year sentence, we are speaking a falsehood about the seriousness of what that person did in taking another life. Right. And likewise, when we give someone a 25-year sentence for stealing $250 in videotapes from Kmart, and I'm not making that up, Right. Uh, we are telling a lie. We are communicating a falsehood about how serious mm-hmm. that, that action was. And so this happens in both directions, that we overpunish and we underpunish. Uh, in fact, that that idea of overpunishing and underpunishing is the currency on which plea bargaining operates, which I'm sure we'll talk about because yeah. it's a topic I discuss right. in there. That 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 plea bargaining operates by threatening to overpunish or promising to underpunish. Yeah. And it in, in the process tells a lie about the severity of the wrong. It is inaccurate 
Uh, it fails the principle of accuracy because a failure of proportionality yeah. is a failure of accuracy. Sometimes when you're talking about this stuff, I feel like I'm just struggling to keep my head above the waters. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, as someone who hasn't even been to one day of law school versus yeah. someone who's been practicing law and thinking about these things for 25 plus years. Yeah. Um, well, I think that you'll, I mean, part of why I wrote a book and just don't go around talking about this is a book gives you the ability to read a chapter, go back and read a chapter. Right. I, I, I tried very hard and hopefully I succeeded to some degree in trying to break this down in small bite-sized pieces. Yeah. Part of why the book's so long is I didn't want to just assume that my readers know many of these things. Yeah. You know, kind of take it in slow incremental steps. Yeah. Um, explain aspects of the justice system bit by bit. Yeah. Uh, and you can read it and reread it and read it again. Yeah. So I think I think we certainly haven't covered everything from the first half of the book, but I think we've sufficiently covered uh, the the we've covered our bases on on the theory. Uh, the I think we the left one ethics. thing out though that right. I, I think is important: accountability. Okay, um, and I think this is a central element. So in the the theology I lay out at the beginning, I start with the principle of accuracy. Due process is the means by which we get accuracy. Mm -hmm. Proportionality in punishment is speaking accurately about the seriousness of the wrong. I also talk about impartiality, mm -hmm. uh, that we don't favor victims or accused based on who they are, but we judge them based on what they've done. Right. And then lastly, I talk about accountability. Accountability is speaking truthfully about the wrongs done by those who are administering the system. Okay. In other words, um, back to what we discussed, that the state has to be restrained. If we don't restrain the state when the state acts unjustly, okay. we are failing to speak accurately about the state. Right. Um, and that is its own injustice. Do we have the authority to punish the state so, when it misuses its authority? Well, so I think the, the implicit, this is back to Romans 13, implicit in government having the authority being ordained by God to bear the sword against evildoers that means the government is acting wrongly when the government acts against people who are not evildoers. Right. And we are we are given the authorization to punish those um, who use violence against others. So let me let me break this down. The, remember the government I started with the government is violence. Right. The conundrum is got violence is prohibited. Right. The government is authorized to protect citizens. Sometimes the government must use violence to protect citizens. Right. The, but again, the government does not have whatever authority the government wants to claim. Right. At least not from God. Right. The moral authority the government has is to act in certain limited circumstances under certain conditions, one two witness rule, right? right. Against certain evils. Okay. If the government exceeds that authority, then we're back to point one of the conundrum. It is generally wrong to use violence against others. Okay. When the government acts outside of its authority, that's been given by God, the government is just like everyone else at that point. Okay. Right? So if the presumptive rule— in The government is the evildoer. Yeah, the gov— the, the, yeah. The, the, When I say the government, the government magistrates, right. the government authorities, right. to use Romans 13 words. And so if the government officials exceed their immoral authority, they're now in the group of people who are— who Scripture says you can punish them. Right. right? They are bearing a sword. They are doing violence with no authorization from God to do it. If so, they right, and so right, at that no, point right, yeah. they are just like a, a common criminal. In fact, Augustine says this. G Augustine says 
what he, he states it in rhetorical terms. What is government without justice but a great band of robbers? Mm-hmm. That, that's, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great phrase. He captures Fantastic. this notion, right? Which yeah. is that if you, if you as government act outside the realms of justice, you are just a criminal. Mm-hmm. And guess what we do to criminals? We punish them. Right. Uh, um, Irenaeus uh, of Lyon, I think a second century church father, mm-hmm. has, a, has a work called Against Heresies. And in that book, Against Heresies, he says, when the magistrate, referring to the government official, acts unjustly, he too must perish. Mm. Um, and so what he's identifying is this notion that we talked about with Romans 13, that there's limited jurisdiction. And if you exceed that God-given jurisdiction, you are just back in the category of, of great band of robbers. Right. And you too must perish. So and how so, do we do that? So as I, I break down in the chapter about accountability, there's various ways. I think I identify nine different ways mm-hmm. that uh, government officials can act unjustly. That's right. Right. One it's way is you, uh, yeah. you can read the book. <laughs> One way is um, a government official could carry out a law that's unjust. So, so the, the law, a police officer could enforce a law that is unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, like, let's say the law said you can't meet at church on Sunday. Right. Uh, that, that may be an existing law, but if a police officer carries out that law, uh, enforces that law by arresting people at church, that's unjust. Okay. So the law is unjust, and the police officer acts unjustly by enforcing the law. Mm-hmm. But we could have a law that is just, for example, thou should, you know, murder is a crime. Right. And a police officer could, in an effort to enforce that law, arrest someone who didn't commit murder. Mm-hmm. So the law is just, but the police officer acted unjustly in right. prosecuting it. You could have a, another example is the law could say these procedures must be followed to prosecute someone. And we could say though that satisfies the all reasonable means test. Those procedures are the right procedures. But then you could have a prosecutor violate the procedures. That would be unjust. Right. Or you could have a set of procedures that are not all reasonable means. The prosecutor prosecutor could follow the procedures, but that would be unjust because he or she is following a set of procedures that's unjust. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of of variables on this. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Right, and that's why I try to list them out and sort of break them into categories. Um, You know, what are injustices by the legislature in passing laws? What are injustices by the police in enforcing and the prosecutors by prosecuting and judges by mm-hmm. presiding, right? Yeah. Break it down into how could each of those groups run afoul of justice? Yeah. And the, the then you have to say, what can we do to address injustices by those various groups in those various contexts? Our constitution puts some limitations on us. So we have what's called the ex post facto clause, okay. which says you can't make things crimes after the fact. So if if the law said a prosecutor could do X, we can't, after the prosecutor does X, say, oh, no, no, like I, that's actually unjust. We're going to criminally prosecute you now, yeah. which makes sense. I mean, if we told people they can follow the law, we shouldn't be criminally prosecuting them retroactively. So we can't criminally prosecute a prosecutor in that situation. Okay. But we could allow a civil lawsuit for the harm they caused mm-hmm. by following an unjust law. But we don't do that. But we don't do that. In fact, this is a lot of the debate you've probably heard or some of your listeners might have heard references to things called qualified immunity. Yeah. Right? This has gotten some discussion about 
how police officers have qualified immunity, meaning if they violate your constitutional rights, they are only in very limited circumstances subject to federal civil rights lawsuits to recover damages for the harm done. Right. What your listeners might not have heard about is what's called absolute immunity. So prosecutors have absolute immunity, meaning they cannot be sued in federal civil rights lawsuits for violating your constitutional rights intentionally Mm. in a prosecution. Let me say that again, because you might have thought, like, that's nuts. If a federal, if, if a state or federal prosecutor intentionally violates your constitutional rights while prosecuting a case, you cannot sue them as a, in a federal civil rights lawsuit. They have absolute immunity from, from lawsuits. That is unjust. Yeah. Because it is refusing to hold wrongdoers accountable. So what, what do you say to people who would say if, if they were allowed to be sued, there would just sort of be prosecute, prosecutorial chaos. Like they would just never really want to bring anything against anybody for fear that they would just be sued if they, you know. Yeah, so you're, so you're telling me the prosecutors who are using the justice system of, uh, against others don't trust the system to be used against them? Uh, yeah, I'm not yeah. that sympathetic to that <laughs> okay. argument. Is there anything else you want to say about accountability? No, I just think that that's a critical component yeah. of this, that it yeah. is that justice means speaking accurately when the governors govern unjustly. Yeah, that's good, brother. So moving on into the individual elements of the criminal justice system, I think I think everyone thus far that's read your manuscript, which will be out in November, by the way. Correct. From Crossway. Find it on Amazon. Pre-order it now. Um, they, they've said that chapter 11 has just been the standout chapter. Just absolutely mind-blowing. So talking about the system of plea bargaining, essentially, uh, Carissa Byrne Hessick has written that it is a system of pressure and pleas, not of truth in trials. What does she mean by that? Yeah, so I think that what folks don't appreciate is that when the criminal justice system convicts someone more often than not, it is through a guilty plea, a plea bargaining, rather than through a trial. Again, people get their sense of the criminal justice system from television and law and order isn't a case about plea bargaining. It's a case about trial. I mean, a TV show about trials. Right. And so what people probably don't know that something like 94 to 97% of criminal cases are resolved through plea bargaining. In other words, I'm taking the cases, not the ones that are dismissed after an arrest because there's not enough evidence. I'm talking about the ones that are charged and go all the way through a judgment of either guilty or not guilty. That of that body of cases, 97% end in guilty pleas. Only about- They do not go to trial. Do not go to trial. Only something like three to 6% go to trial. And so you got to stop and ask yourself, if you just think about it for a second, our constitution guarantees you the right to a jury trial. Mm -hmm. It's actually in the constitution twice. It's in the Declaration of Independence as one of our grievances against King George, Mm. that he was denying the right to a jury trial. Our country was like literally founded on the idea of a right to a jury trial. So why are 94 to 97% of people giving up their right to a jury trial? I mean, why not just take a shot? I mean, maybe you'll be found not guilty. Like, what do you have to lose? And what Professor Hessick is identifying is that our system is designed to coerce you 
out of going to trial. Coerce isn't that isn't that isn't that loaded language? It is it is designed to coerce you, and I mean that. And I think that anyone who reads chapter eleven okay. will conclude I am not overstating the case when I say the system is designed to coerce you into guilty pleas. But let me let me explain for your listeners. Okay. So imagine if I told you the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees you the right to free exercise of religion, okay. and you're like, cool, great. So I can go to church on Sunday. And then I said, you can, but if you go to church on Sunday, I'm going to fine you $100. Okay. You'd be like, dude, that's not how the First <laughs> Amendment works, right? Yeah. You'd be like, I, I, I have a right to go to, uh, to church, so you can't fine me for mm-hmm. doing it. I mean, no, 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 you can go. I'm not going to stop you from going. Right. Go carry on. Yeah. I'm just saying if you do, I'm going to charge you more. Right. You'd be like, come on, man, that's that's stupid. Like right. that's that's not what it means to have a right to do something that you can charge me money to do it. Right. So imagine if I told you you have a right to a jury trial. I'm not gonna stop you from using it, mm-hmm. but if you use it, I'm gonna send you to jail longer. Mm-hmm. So you can plead guilty and I'll send you to jail for one year. If you go to trial and you lose, you're going to jail for 10. All right. Put, That's coercion. That is coercion. But let's yeah. let's pause. And I'm I'm trying to steel man the the case against you. Okay. Yeah. In in your first illustration, uh, they are imposing a fine, right? Yeah. In the second situation, what the prosecutor is doing is really just saying, "I can be lenient with you, or I can prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law for the crime that you have already committed." Okay. So so, uh, if you, uh, <laughs> so so. What you'd have to be saying there is that I'm allowed to penalize if I call it a reduction. Okay, so let me, let me, let me, you're, I think the way to think about this is let's assume, again, we talk about biblical justice. Okay. Let's assume someone is um, charged with a crime and the just sentence for that crime is one year in prison. Okay. Just, just accept that as a hypothetical. Yeah, the thought thing, experiment. The yeah. Bible, yeah. the biblically just, the biblically proportionate right. sentence for that crime is one year. Okay. But we say, if you go to trial, I'm going to give you 10 years. That's unjust. Right. And I think that is coercion. Okay. And that is not giving you leniency. Um, leniency would be giving me less than one year. Right, okay. we've agreed that one year is the biblically just sentence for okay. this. So maybe you could make the case that if I'm giving you less than the biblically just sentence, that I am granting leniency. But you can't say that if I'm jacking up the sentence above the biblically just sentence. And you say, "Oh, that, well, does that happen?" It absolutely happens. Okay. So I'll give I'm sure you. You have examples. I'll give. I have examples in my book. I'll yeah. give you old examples and new examples. So. Um, three strikes laws are an example of how we jack up the sentence above a biblically just level in order to coerce guilty pleas. So let's imagine you've got this person and they stole they got a prior conviction for shoplifting. They're convicted. They serve their sentence. Later conviction for shoplifting. They're convicted. Serve their sentence. And then they have a third instance of shoplifting in which they steal $252 worth of videotapes from Kmart. That's an oddly specific number. It's an oddly specific number from a very odd Supreme Court case. Okay. In which the state of California said, on that third strike, uh, you serve 25 to life. Okay. For the crime 
of stealing $252 of videotapes from Kmart. Okay. Now, people say, well, it's his third strike. Sure, but he's already paid a sentence for the prior crimes. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to repenalize him for those crimes, A, you can't do that under the Constitution, but B, you'd be imposing an unjust sentence for those prior crimes for which the person has already been punished and paid their sentence. So the 25 years is for the third crime. 25 years for stealing videotapes is not a biblically just sentence. Okay. Uh, there is no way you're going to convince me that that's, and I don't think it's going to convince your your listeners that 25 right. years for stealing $252 in videotapes is a biblically just sentence. T- a, a, a year in prison for every for every $10 right. of videotapes. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to say that's a proportionate response. So this is how you say, well, what's that have to do with plea bargaining? The way three strikes laws works is on that third strike, let's say someone comes in and they're arrested for the stealing the $252 in videotapes. The prosecutor could just charge them with stealing $252 in videotapes and they'd get whatever they'd get, a year in jail or, okay. or whatever the sentence would be. And the prosecutor can threaten and say, if you plead and take the year, the, take the whatever the biblically just sentence right. is, um, if you plead, we'll give you the biblically just sentence. If you refuse to plead, I will add the charge. Right of three strikes and give you a biblically unjust sentence. And that's, in fact, how the system works. And in fact, the Supreme Court said um, in a case involving passing bad checks of, I think, under $100 as a third strike, the Supreme Court was had to consider is threatening to add the three strikes, 25-year-to-life sentence if someone doesn't plead permissible. Mm-hmm. And the court said yes. In other words, we can threaten people with unjust sentences if they refuse to plead. And one of the ways that that they do that, which you talk about in the book, is by by, uh, running a bunch of additional charges that they have the option to not run. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, where you can say, "Here's here's the crime you committed. Here is, this crime carries a just sentence. We will give you a just sentence if you plead we will give you an unjust sentence right. if you don't plead. No, they don't say it in those terms. I'm saying that as a Christian. Right, yeah. I'm saying they are offering a just sentence, what I could probably agree is a biblically just sentence if you take the plea, but they're getting that by threatening yeah. to do biblical injustice against you. And and injustice runs both ways such that if if you get someone to agree to take a guilty plea by lowering their sentence below the biblical yeah so let's it's supposed that, to be one year yeah so let's take that scenario let's say that someone commits a sexual assault okay and the biblically just sentence let's just say in those facts and circumstances you and I could agree you know what would be biblically just here would be 20, castration yeah <laughs> 25 <laughs> okay. years right 25 yeah. years let's just say or death. Like, yeah, you know, sure, let's, whatever. Let's say that, that yeah. it, it was a crime worthy of death. And so the the prosecutor says, I will give you a one-year sentence or a five-year sentence mm-hmm. if you will plead guilty. Yeah. Now, that defendant might be thrilled. Right. Because he's, he's getting injustice in his direction. Yeah. But that's not loving the victim. And that's not loving society. Mm-hmm. We're loving maybe, maybe somebody could argue we're loving him. I don't I don't even think we're loving no, him because yeah. we're telling him a lie right. about the seriousness of what he did yeah. and we're denying him the corrective effect of the law. Which honors him as an image bearer. Which, um, which we say to him, this was serious yeah. and you need to stop. Yeah. 
right? That's what we're saying when we give a serious sentence. By giving a lenient sentence, we're saying it wasn't that big a deal. Okay. And you might do it again because we haven't really disciplined you. Right. And and we've so we haven't really loved him and we haven't loved the victim mm-hmm. because we have not said to the victim, we recognize this yeah. as serious as it is. Yeah. And we have not loved society because we have not protected them by saying, by speaking that this was a serious crime. And if you people out in the culture commit it, we will punish you and thus hopefully deterring other people from doing it. So by telling a lie about the seriousness of the offense by imposing a disproportionately lenient sentence, we're not loving anybody. Right. We're we're not loving the the perpetrator, we're not loving the victim, we're not loving our society. Yeah. And so this this but this is the this is the currency of plea bargaining. It's right. either threatening to overpunish you. Yeah. Or unjustly or promising to underpunish you. Right. And in the prom, in the process leaving everybody unloved. So man, okay. <laughs> There's so much. That you, I want to grab on to 15 things you just said. All right, let's go. Um, but I don't want to forget the other things I want to talk about too. <laughs> okay, so what's the deal? We just don't do plea bargaining anymore? So I think, so it's an interesting, an interesting question. I mentioned I was going to talk about two examples of, of how the coercion could work. So there's a, there's a case from Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, in the last couple of years where a woman was charged with voter fraud. Right, yeah. Right, I talk about this in the book. Yeah. And she's offered a no-jail deal if she'll plead. And she says, I didn't do it, I want to go to trial. She goes to trial, gets convicted, they sentence her to six years. Now, it can't be the case that zero jail and six years in jail are both just. Right. Right? One of that, that's that's too big a gap right. to say both are just outcomes. So we can quibble over was the plea bargaining too lenient mm-hmm. or was the sentence after trial too, too severe? Too harsh, yeah. My point is different, which is they can't both be just. Zero and six can't both be just. If the crime was worthy of six, then it's not worthy of zero. And if it was worthy of zero, then it's not worthy of six. So, but we could shrink. I could, and, 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 and when I say coercion, that's what I'm talking about, coercion. The gap is too big such that both outcomes couldn't be just. And that puts pressure on people to plead, even if they didn't do it. But, but I could imagine a world in which we said, um, listen, we're, we, it's not in anybody's interest to waste time if we've got you dead to rights and we know you, right. we've, got, we've got you right. dead to rights. So the just sentence is six years a, a, but but reasonable Christians could agree that it's also just to impose five and a half, and it's also just to impose six and a half. Like, okay. right, this isn't mathematical yeah. precision. So I think if you took a case where it was just to impose somewhere between five and a half and six and a half, mm-hmm. you could say, listen, we'll give you the low end of that range, five and a half, if you plead guilty. If you go to trial, we're going to give you the high end of the range. We're still within a band that is reasonable and just, but we're going to, within the band of reasonableness, we're going to give you some leniency to save us all time. Yeah. If I tell you I'm going to knock six months off of your six-year sentence and you didn't do it, the chances that that's going to coerce you into pleading guilty is pretty low. Right. Right. 
But if I say I'm going to cut your sentence from 10 to 1, you might plead guilty even if you're innocent. Yeah. Because the band is outside the realm of justice. Both can't be just. Yeah, right. And the result is that puts too much pressure on people to plead even if they didn't do it. Yeah. So what I'm saying is there could be a criminal justice system that allowed for plea bargaining that didn't coerce people and still achieve just sentences even with the guilty pleas. But we have created too big a band between what's offered in the plea and what's imposed after sentence, after trial, such that we are coercing people Mm -hmm. and imposing unjust sentences. For more on that, just read chapter 11. Just read chapter 11. <laughs> There's a lot. You also talk about pre-trial detention right. as a means of coercion. Yeah. So that's so not only are we coercing people into pleading guilty by threatening longer sentences, we also plead guilty coerce people into plead guilty by detaining them prior to trial. Now, again, backing up first principles of scripture, we have the authority to punish, to use coercive force against the guilty, mm -hmm. against the evildoer. But we don't know who's guilty or who's not until we go through a process, mm -hmm. a trial, right? Right. So the police investigate and they arrest somebody and they say they did it. There hasn't been a process yet. Um, we're not going to know whether that person actually did it as opposed to the police saying they did it until we go through a process. That Sorry, has there been a limited process, some weighing of evidence? Well, the, the police have the police have done an investigation, but you have not had a chance. It hasn't to, been a full process. Well, it's not, it, you haven't had a chance to question a single one of their witnesses. Right, yeah. You haven't had a chance to do it. You know, there's no process that you get to go in and cross-examine anyone. I guess what there's, I'm asking there is, is, a, is he the, was first in his own cause. There's no, and his neighbor comes and searches right. him out yet. I guess what I'm asking is there a sort of uh, pre-process wherein uh, for example, to issue an arrest warrant. Like right. there hasn't been a trial, but the state has to go through some kind of process to feel like they're in, they're trending towards justice in their execution of an arrest. So the state does have to present evidence to satisfy the standard of probable cause. Right. That is a much lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. 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 And it is without a process where the defendant can test the evidence. Okay. So the question is, does that satisfy the all reasonable means <laughs> test such that we no. can punish people? I don't think right. it yeah. does. Yeah. So the question then becomes, what authority do we have to incarcerate people before the process, before the all reasonable means process that ensures accuracy? Sure. And that's what's happening. So in the United States, the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that you, you can't be denied reasonable bail. In other okay. words, uh, as a general rule, everyone thought until 1987, that meant unless you were a flight risk, you were entitled to be able to post bail and to be out prior to trial okay. for almost all crimes. Or unless you'd committed a crime that was so severe. Well, the, the idea behind that was so many crimes in early America were punished by death that if you, <laughs> if you, if you committed one of those crimes, you were a flight risk because, right. <laughs> because we were going to kill you right. if we convicted you. But would that not also be another factor? Like, it wouldn't be reasonable for me to grant you bail if we suspect you of having killed 15 people. So, it could so, be a danger to the community. So there's certainly a, a category of case in which you could rely on principles of self-defense where you would say we would be justified in using force against someone prior to conviction as an act of self-defense. Okay. I think, I think you, a Christian could okay. make that case. Right. You know, I don't think you have to say 
someone's a terrorist and tried to blow up the Pentagon and we need to tell, and we need to like grant them bail and let them wander around Northern (laughs) Virginia for a year until we get to trial. So I'm I'm not arguing for an unreasonable position here. Okay. But, But that's not the case I'm concerned about. Okay. So in any given day in the United States, if, you, if, we, if we did a count today, somewhere around roughly 500,000 people in the United States are being detained prior to trial. How many? 500,000. Something like two-thirds to three-quarters of them, and it fluctuates slightly. So several hundred thousand people right. are being held for property crimes, traffic offenses, uh, or drug charges. Okay. Are, are we seriously saying that there's no conditions that we could let them out on prior to trial that, that um, would assure the safety of the community? Are we seriously saying they're in the category of the terrorists who we have to I understand the argument okay. for, right? In other words, we are taking cases of relatively minor charges in, in hundreds of thousands of cases. Every, every day, this is going on. Hundreds of thousands of people are detained today because of property crimes, traffic offenses, or drug charges okay. before they have been convicted of anything. Right. What authority do we have to use coercive force of imprisonment against someone on those relatively minor charges where I don't think you can make the self-defense case, where we have not yet gone through all reasonable means of establishing their guilt? Uh, do, have we not made it possible for them to bail out? So, so two, two issues there. Uh, it depends what you mean by made it possible. Some of them are denied bail. Okay. Some of them are granted bail, but in amounts that they are not financially capable of mm-hmm. meeting. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that a lot of us can forget um, how many of our fellow Americans don't have financial means at their disposal. Right. The estimates are that the average bail amount in the United States is $10,000. How many how many Americans do you yeah. know have ten thousand dollars laying around? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of I mean, people, even middle class Americans, middle class, you know? right? I mean, that is a substantial amount of money for mm-hmm. most people. And so, to say you can't get out of trial, you can't get out of jail prior to trial unless you can come up with ten thousand dollars, is to say you can't get you can't, out of jail yeah, right. prior to trial. And the question is, for someone charged with a traffic offense, what a th- what moral authority do I have to imprison them? prior to trial. So here's what happens with this. Uh, Let's say someone's facing a traffic offense where worst case scenario after trial, they're going to get three months. Like let's say it's a reckless driving and and maybe they're going to get three months or six months in jail if they get convicted at trial. Yeah. So after they've been denied bail or gotten a bail in an amount that they can't pay, uh, three to six months later, their, their public defender shows up at their jail cell and says, I got good news. The prosecutor says, if you plead guilty today, you can get time served and go home today. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there. Let's imagine you're the person there who's like, but I didn't do it. Right. Okay, well, you can wait for a trial. How long is that going to take? Well, it'll be another six months to a year. Right. Okay, so I got to stay in jail for another six months or a year to get my trial to show I didn't, to get my all reasonable means to show I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, but you can go home today if you say you did it, but I didn't do it. Right. Okay, well, then you can stay in jail. Right. So we're putting... Co- and if you stay in jail, lose your job. Lose your job, yeah, potentially right. be sexually assaulted, get your kids sent into foster care. Right. So you're being detained without all reasonable means having been uh, provided yet to prove your innocence. Mm-hmm. 
and you're told you're going to have to stay in jail longer to prove your innocence, or you can get out today if you just say you did it. That's coercion, and I think it's unjust. And so you say, well, is this all hypothetical, your concerns about the coercion on people pleading guilty when they didn't do it? Aren't the people pleading guilty just people who did it anyway and they're just sort of sucking it up, right? I mean, that's that's what you're thinking. So 3,272 people as of the end of 2022 have been exonerated uh, after having been convicted of crimes they didn't commit since 1989. So since 1989, August of 1989, with the advent of forensic DNA technology, Mm -hmm. through the end of 2022, 3,272 people were convicted, sentenced, and then we later on figured out they didn't do it. And when I say do it, everything from murder to to robbery, to drugs, to sexual assault. Over 20% of those 3,272 people who were exonerated pled guilty. It's been proven that they are innocent. Innocent. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. And and pled guilty. And that they pled guilty. We know, just to take another example, of the, uh, there's a law professor at at Duke who did a study of the first 250 people exonerated by DNA. So he took, after 1989, he took the first 250 exonerations Mm -hmm. and studied them to look at common features about them. I think it was, um, 18 of them, 16 of them had pled guilty. Mm. People we know is a scientific fact didn't commit the crime. And serious crimes, because we're not talking about speeding. These are crimes that had DNA Mm -hmm. as as available evidence to prove innocence. We know that that 8%, something like that, of people in the first 250 DNA exonerations pled guilty to things they didn't do. Mm -hmm. So we know that my concerns about people pleading guilty, we know as a scientific fact, are legitimate concerns. People pleading guilty to things they didn't do. One of the biggest studies done on this was done in the Houston court system in Texas. Um, there, was a, there was a court order as a result of a lawsuit to adjust their bail practices. And that, that's, that order was about four or five years ago. And so some researchers at the University of Pennsylvania looked at the three years before the court order and the three years after the court order. And they looked at, um, in the three years after the court order, more people were granted bail and released. And they wanted to see what happens to guilty pleas when people are released prior to trial on bail and what happens to recidivism, right? Because this is the argument often given in advance. Well, if we let these people out, they're dangerous. They're going to go commit more crimes mm-hmm. while they're out. Right. And what the the study by the University <laughs> of Pennsylvania researchers, which came out last summer, showed is that convictions, guilty pleas, went down when we granted people bail. Mm. Not surprising. Right. And recidivism went down what? when we granted people bail. By what mechanism? Meaning they the, people committed less crimes right. when we let them out. Oh, uh, okay. Right. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. I thought these are people who committed crimes. Why would letting them out reduce their recidivism? Why would it reduce? And, and the answer is, of course, because if you blow up somebody's life financially, you eliminate their family and community ties, and you blow up their job and their housing, what do you think they're going to do when they get back out? 
In other words, we're not keeping people safe. If you're if you're if you're a utilitarian and you say, well, we got to do what keeps people safe, yeah. this isn't keeping people safer. Right, right. What we're doing is both unjust, coercing innocent people into pleading guilty, and it is not making us safer yeah. because we know jailing people on minor offenses prior to trial blows up their lives and causes them or contributes to them yeah. committing more crime when they do finally get out. So if you want to be just and have less crime, then we should not be detaining at the rates we're detaining prior to trial. Mm. Guys, uh, I've read every word of, uh, except for the footnotes, <laughs> and the end notes and the bibliography. 900 footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every, every word of text in the book, and chapter 11 was the place where I just had to stop and just gather myself. I just could not believe it was that bad. But as I was reading chapter 11 on plea bargaining, it, it it wasn't like you you captured me emotively, right? It wasn't that like ideologically I felt like in sync with you. It was just the preponderance of evidence. It was just wave after wave, statistic after statistic, uh, not anecdote, but stories yeah. uh, from U.S. history and what's happening currently, just washing over, proving what I think you say at the end of chapter 11, which is that you just say it plainly. The American system of plea bargaining as it is now is unjust. It is designed to coerce people out of their right to trial, and it does so through just disproportionate sentences and an, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think it violates every principle of biblical justice. It does not achieve accuracy. In fact, we know the opposite, that it coerces people who are innocent into pleading guilty. It does not provide due process um, it is done, in fact, to strip you of your process. Uh, we coerce you into to giving up your process. We coerce you into giving yeah. up your process. It is not impartial because this falls disproportionately on the poor who can't afford bail and who can't afford a public defender. And this, this coalesces with the issue of public defenders where they're underfunded and thus there's not enough of them. And so you could sit there waiting for three to six months for your public defender to come see you and offer you this deal. So it, it violates the principle of impartiality. It violates the principle of accountability. Um, I'm sorry, of proportionality. Yeah. Because we're either giving people disproportionately lenient sentences and telling a lie about the seriousness of what they've done, or we're threatening them with disproportionately severe sentences and telling a lie about the severity of what they've done. And for all of this, there is no accountability by prosecutors who are playing a role in this. It literally violates every principle of biblical justice. So what you just did there... Um, is what you do from chapter 11 on as you talk about every element of the criminal justice system. You run it through that rubric, the five right. elements of biblical criminal justice, and you say, you say, how does this stack up against these five principles? Yeah, so that's why I open with, let's talk about what Scripture demands of us mm -hmm. you know, at a conceptual level. And then let me explain to you each element of the system. Let's talk about plea bargaining, and let's ask ourselves, is what we are doing consistent with what the Bible calls us to do as disciples right. of Jesus. As, right. as people who claim we're going to follow him and love our neighbors mm -hmm. as ourselves, are we, when it comes to plea bargaining, following Jesus and loving our neighbors as ourselves? Have we designed the system? Have we sliced the pie the way we would slice it if we didn't know which lot in life we had? Right. Or are we slicing the pie the way we sliced it because we know it affects people who aren't like us? It affects Samaritans. Yeah. I wanted us to spend... <laughs> Sorry, the, the weight of your last sentence just hit me. 
uh, I wanted us to spend the vast majority of our time on the first half of the book and then chapter 11. But now let's just at a not superficial level, but without going as deep, talk about some of the other elements. Let's start with the jury. Yeah. The jury system. Yeah. So I think understanding the jury system requires a, a historical discussion, which I offer really going back to the founding. So the, the jury system is an amazing feature of America. I love the jury system. I try cases to juries. Every time I try a case to jury, nobody wants to be on the jury. And when we're done, everyone's like, that was awesome. I mm. love doing that. I've never had anybody tell me I wish I didn't get to do that. They might not have liked missing out on work for two weeks, but people look back they at it. They made $20 a day, though. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> They're getting rich. But I think they look back on it and are proud of what we do in America when, it, when we do try cases right. to juries. We don't, a G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with having criminal justice professionals is that they can become cynical. As he said, they start to see the usual man in the usual place, mm -hmm. right? right. The, the man in the dock, the man sitting behind the defense table. What we do in America when it comes to doing anything really important in criminal justice is we ask a jury of average people to do it. Right. We know that's where the wisdom is. Right. It's a, it's a great feature. It's, again, we, our nation was founded on the idea of the jury system, of the right to a jury trial. We had a beef with King George over denying us. We mm -hmm. say this in the Declaration mm -hmm. of Independence. That's one of, it's not just about tea in Boston Harbor. We were mad about jury trials. Yeah. Uh, and and we revolted over that. This is a literally a revolutionary idea yeah. um, for, for us as Americans. I believe in it. I love the jury trial. Uh, Thomas Jefferson viewed it as a protection. Um, uh, Tocqueville talks about this as well, that it's a protection. It's a way that the average person can participate in government yeah. and, and can say to government officials, that's overreach. We're not going to join you in punishing this person. You're doing a great job selling me right. on so, the jury So I system. love the jury system, and I want people to understand that it is a great feature of America, but the, but the history of the jury system in America is that we only let white men do it. Okay. So here's where we're getting to the necessary to the intersection yeah, of race. I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from the history, right. even if it makes us uncomfortable. It was not until—we didn't allow women. There was no constitutional right for women to be on juries mm -hmm. uh, until uh, 1972, Somewhere in the 70s, wow. late 60s, it might, might be. I don't 60, think you say that. Might Did be you say that. In the it's book? in a footnote. Okay. Uh, I think it was 19. It was late 60s, early 70s before we said you couldn't exclude women because they're women. Mm. Um, but we didn't have any African Americans serve on juries in the United States until the best historical research is until around 1855, 1860. So African Americans couldn't serve at all. Mm -hmm. And there's a history, even after 1860, of prosecutors attempting to exclude African-Americans because they're African-Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and they became increasingly creative in their mechanisms. So early on, um, in a case called Strouder versus West Virginia, the Supreme Court said, you can't have a law that says only white people can be on juries. Okay, so prosecutors then say, okay, well, when we make up lists of who our jurors are, we're, gonna we're, we're just not going to include black people on the lists. Um, nope, can't do that. Okay, well, we're going to say only people of character, and we don't know any black people of good character, so we're going to keep them off the list. And Supreme Court says you can't do that. And so, and so then they say, okay, we're going to pick them randomly with slips of paper. And so they put all the white names on white paper and all the black names on yellow paper. Random, they have a child yeah. reach in and magically, oh, man. The, all the white slips and no yellow slips. And the Supreme Court's like, come on, like we know statistics, like that's not real. 
And so there's this, what you see is this tug in <laughs> this tug, tug of war going on between prosecutors trying to exclude black people and the Supreme Court trying to rein this in that's running from the late 1890s into the mid 1900s. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like 1950, 1960. So the last effort that prosecutors made to exclude black people was through from juries was through the use of what's called a peremptory challenge. So briefly, when you go into you're called for jury duty, they ask you questions to see can you should you be disqualified what's what's called for cause. Right. Maybe you know the defendant, you know the police officer, you're friends with the prosecutor, you yourself have been a victim of this type of crime. Mm-hmm. You know, good reasons. Anything that would affect your impartiality. Right, yeah. right. That you may be a perfectly fine juror, but not for this case. Right. right. So those people are excluded for cause. But then both the prosecution and the defense have the ability to strike people, what's called peremptorily. You don't need a reason. So imagine I'm the prosecutor and you walk in and I see that uh, you have tattoos. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. People who have tattoos might be like government skeptics right. or you have an ACLU t-shirt. And I'm right. like, yeah, I'm not sure I want him. You know, he's sort of like against, against the government. So I'm going to just use a peremptory. It's not cause your tattoos or your yeah. ACL. T- you don't have AC- to tell anyone anything. Yeah, you're a- I don't have to give a reason. I can just say, you know, I don't like the guy with the ACLU t-shirt. Yeah, right. or I, you know, excuse juror number four. Right. The yeah. way it goes like, I thank and excuse juror number four. You know, so you get up and you're like, cool, I can, you know, go back to- Juror number four goes home and looks right. in the mirror. <laughs> Why? What's yeah, wrong yeah. with so, me? But so what happened though is prosecutors realized, okay, I can't exclude jurors based on law and I can't mm-hmm. exclude them from the white slips and the yellow slips and I can't use all these other means, but I, I don't have to give any reason for peremptories. So I'm just going to use all my peremptories to strike all the black people. And recognizing that in a world where it was, where African-Americans make up a minority of the population- And in a time when excluding people from the right to vote was excluding them from jury service, it was very hard for even African-Americans to get on the lists Mm -hmm. to show up. Um, You didn't need a lot of peremptories to keep the African-Americans off the jury. Yeah. And so- You didn't have to use up all your peremptories. Or if you did, you had enough. Right, okay. Right? I mean, if you say African-Americans are 10 10 to 13% of the population, you don't need that many peremptories on a jury of 12 to knock the two or three out. Right. So, so, so there's this history of prosecutors using peremptories to get all white juries. Or studies also show if you have only one African-American on a jury, they, it, or one of any racial group, right, yeah. right? If you're sort of isolated as one, it's, you're pretty, just gonna go it's with hard the crowd, to yeah. hold out, right? right? So, so until, it was not until 1986, 1986, I was 14. The year I was born. Okay. Right. So not this is, this is not ancient history. No. It was not until 1986 that the Supreme Court said you you can't exclude people through peremptories on the basis of race. Mm. 1986. Mm-hmm. That's the history in America. And you might say, well, I'm at least glad that they, they stopped that in 1986. But, but it didn't stop in 1986. Just to take one example, and I give a bunch of anecdotes about how it's continued in the United States since 1986. In 2019, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, no liberal, right? No liberal, liberal Trump appointee to the Supreme Court, writes an opinion reversing the conviction of Curtis Flowers, who was tried six times for murder and sentenced to death, uh, convicted and sentenced to death four times, 
each of the convictions getting reversed for various reasons. And in those six trials, the prosecutor was using his peremptory challenges to strike the African-American jurors. What the court found was, I think, 42 out of 43 African-American jurors that he could strike with peremptories, he did. Hmm. And Justice Kavanaugh, writing an opinion for the court, said, you've got to be kidding me. This is all a coincidence? Yeah. And sent the case back uh, to be retried without using peremptories to strike jurors on the basis of race, at which point the prosecutor dropped the case Mm. and was reelected that fall. Mm. Okay. So no accountability, no impartiality, right? And in a way that's got is affecting accuracy, um, and you have to believe it's affecting accuracy because if you don't believe it's affecting the outcomes, then why is the prosecutor doing it? Right. Okay. You wouldn't do it unless you thought it was affecting outcomes. Again, let me try to enter into. Let me be an interlocutor here. Yeah. Uh, what if um, someone would say, maybe even a prosecutor would say, "Listen, I'm not racist." But at the end of the day, I need to prosecute this crime against this person who, because I have, from what I believe, I think he is guilty. Yeah. And my desire to exclude, it doesn't have to be African-American, right? It could be Asians, whatever. Right. Uh, These people based on race is because I just sociologically understand, insert OJ (laughs) trial, that people are going to stick together. and and, And I'm worried that black juries might free a black man who's guilty. So I guess I would say to that, why are you assuming that people, that African-Americans are uninterested in justice? Right. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Right? You're saying that African-Americans as a group are so unjust that they would overlook a serious crime and acquit someone notwithstanding proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. I don't, I certainly don't believe that. And I don't think our system should accept that slander, frankly, against our African-American fellow citizens. I have no reason to believe that our African-American brothers and sisters and fellow citizens are uninterested in justice. What I do believe is that that many of them have experienced our American justice system in a different way Mm -hmm. and might be more skeptical of the evidence and might insist on proof beyond a reasonable doubt mm. in a way that some of some other citizens might not. Right. And I'm not saying that that means all white people don't insist on proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm saying what we shouldn't be making generalizations that are in a, in a sense slanderous against people about whether or not they care about justice. What we should if we really have proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then let's put a jury of our peers, all of our peers, people of all backgrounds um, who we've selected from society on the jury and let them decide. And I I can tell you, as a prosecutor, I was never concerned about having African-Americans on Mm. my juries. You know why? Because if I was wrong, I want them to tell me I'm wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. And And if I can't convince them that this is a just case worthy of prosecution, then it shouldn't be, then it shouldn't have a conviction. But I was never concerned that African-Americans would give me an unjust verdict against an African-American defendant. Because I don't believe that about my fellow Americans. Might they hold me to the real burden of proof? They might. And I should be held to that. It may actually be an asset. Yes. Well, yeah. it, 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 Listen, if at the end of the day, my proof isn't strong enough to convince 12 Americans who we could not eliminate for cause. Right. Right. Again, we're not, we're not talking about people who have expressed bias. Right. We're talking about people who have sworn to the court 
that they can be fair and unbiased. That's mm. the only way you're getting through. Right. So I'm calling them liars? Right. As a racial group? That's based insane. Based on nothing other than they, their skin Based color, on yeah. nothing other than the racial category. Yeah. Very well said. We're going to move on from uh, juries to judges. Go. <laughs> well, um, you know, juries decide the facts of the case. Judges rule on objections about evidence, rule on what evidence will come in, and then instruct the jury on the law. They have a much more limited role in the case. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a role that matters. Uh, and ultimately, they impose the sentence in most instances. That's right. Sometimes a jury can impose the sentence, but Sometimes, usually it's the judges. Much, much more common to have okay. judges impose sentence. And so you have them interpreting the law, making judgment calls about what evidence comes in, and then making judgment calls about sentencing. And so we want judges who are impartial. Yeah. Uh, we want judges who have a sense of proportionality. Uh, you know, we want judges who have a sense of due process in ruling about what means, whether the means are all reasonable means that right. would be afforded to a defendant to present his or her case. Um, and so that raises questions about how we select judges. We mm -hmm. talked about how we select juries, but how do we select judges? So there's really two different models in the United States. At the federal level, the U.S. Constitution provides that judges are nominated by the president, mm -hmm. confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and they have a lifetime appointment. And, the and idea they also of, can't have their salary cut. And they can't have their salary cut. That's right. You've, yeah. uh, you've read the book. Hey. Uh, because uh, it wouldn't be any good to have a lifetime appointment as a judge, and then they can starve you <laughs> out. <laughs> right, yeah. um, and so the idea behind a lifetime appointment is that you won't feel the pressure to rule in favor of one party or the other, depending on how it will play in an upcoming election. Right. You know, you have the freedom to try to do justice. The downside is that there's not accountability. If you mm -hmm. prove to yourself to be someone who's not a person of justice, it's much harder to remove you. You could be impeached. But I think we know from history that's a that's a high bar. It should be a high bar. If we're going to yeah. give life you know, lifetime appointments, we don't want to be retracting it willy-nilly. That's right, yeah. The other model, the model that's used more frequently at the state level, is electing judges. Okay. And that creates risks. Uh, it creates risks that judges will rule not based on what the law provides or what's fair, but what the public wants. Mm -hmm. And those may not align. Um, uh, ruling in favor of a criminal defendant might be a campaign commercial right. uh, in the next election. Right. And there's been studies showing about how judicial behavior, particularly around sentencing, tends to become more severe as the election approaches. Right. You want to be the tough on crime judge. Right. Nobody, Nobody's <laughs> running on the soft on crime platform. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so there's concerns about um, pressures that come to bear. Again, I, I come back to my Augustinian, <laughs> my Augustinian sense, which is that there are no angels, that judges are, as I tell people, judges are people too. Right. And they feel the pressures that the rest of us feel. And we need to find ways to rein them in, but not pressure them into doing injustice just because there might be a mob mentality and, right. and you know, in response to a particular crime. And, and so that's a challenge in thinking about how do we balance providing judges with independence, that's the lifetime appointment and lifetime salary. How do we balance um, providing them with independence, but also checking them appropriately mm -hmm. if they abuse that, but not mm -hmm. checking them in a way that causes them to do injustice. 
And and it's a that's an area where I don't think there's any perfect solution. I think the okay. federal system um, that provides for lifetime appointments and requires appointment by the president and confirmation by the Senate is probably a preferable model. I have real concerns about the incentives with elected judges, but elected is is how the most states operate. It's the it's the most common form. I, again, I, I go back to the the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, uh, right. original position. If you uh, were <clears throat> didn't know whether you'd be the crime victim or criminally accused, what would, kind of judge would, would you, you want, want to go the judge of, yeah. who's got an election in six months? Right. Uh, or would you want the judge who has a lifetime appointment? So can, do you think we can change that at the state level? Well, we certainly could. I mean, there's nothing prohibit. I mean, if you say like legally, could we? I mean, there's nothing prohibiting from states from some some states. There's a, a small number of states actually have an appointment process, and then some actually even have a, an appointment with a lifetime tenure. Hmm. Um, so that there are states that have done it that way, and there's nothing legally prohibiting other states from doing it that way. They they might have to change their constitutions, or they might have to change their statutes. Uh, but it could be done. It's really a matter of whether or not we uh, we have the will to do it. And you would say right now we don't. Obviously, we don't because if we did, we would. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're we are we've to the extent people have thought about it, they're satisfied. Okay. But again, I my question is: Are you satisfied because you think you're getting the bigger piece of pie, hmm. uh, or are you satisfied because you think the pie was sliced evenly? Right. Let's talk about counsel. Yeah, right to counsel. Yeah. So in a United, this is another feature of the system. I I recount in my book. So in the United States, in our constitution, and I think I mentioned this earlier, we have uh, in the Sixth Amendment, the right to a counsel, even if you can't afford a lawyer. And in 1963, in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court ruled that that applies to people prosecuted at the state level as well. Mm-hmm. And that sounds great. Uh, it's sort of like uh, the ruling in Batson versus Kentucky that you can't strike jurors based on race in 1983. Yeah. And you're like, that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad we fixed that. Um, so that was 1963 in Gideon versus Wainwright. This is 2023. It was 60 years ago in March of this year that the Supreme Court ruled in that way. And yet the reality is we are, as a practical matter, not providing people with meaningful counsel. And, and that's not at all a critique of people who serve as public defenders or appointed right. lawyers. Yeah. They are people who are often quite skilled yeah. and very committed to the job. The, the issue is whether or not we have enough lawyers for, for the people who are being charged. So just to provide a couple examples on that. So the American Bar Association has been doing studies on a state-by-state basis um, to look at uh, the number of lawyers appointed and the number of lawyers needed given the type of cases charged in that state, the number of cases charged, and the average time it takes to provide a meaningful defense in those mm-hmm. cases. So they've looked at Rhode Island, Missouri, New Mexico, Louisiana, a number of other states. And in state after state, what they found is that the states have about one-third the number of lawyers necessary to provide a meaningful defense mm-hmm. to given the caseload in those states. There's a there's a, a series of rulings in in Louisiana, which is one of the the worst states in this regard. Louisiana incarcerates more people per capita than any state in the country and in any place in the world. Oh wow! Um, and their criminal defense system is abysmal. Hmm. Um, and that's not my view. That's the view of the state supreme court of Louisiana. Hmm. 
which has said that the legislature is failing to fund criminal defense in that state in a way that satisfies the uh, holding of Gideon versus Wainwright. Um, one judge commented that that a prosecutor who had a trial scheduled for every day of the year, who then obviously had no time to prepare yeah, for the trials. How even, yeah, how could you even? He, as, as the judge put it, not even a lawyer with an S on his chest right. uh, could, could provide an adequate defense. There's another story about a, a prosecutor in Louisiana who had 19,000 cases a year. So when I tell people this story, I, 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 I say- That sounds I, like it can't be real. It sounds crazy, right? But so I tell people like to take out their calculator and like do the math with me. Yeah. You know, each week has 40 hours to work, right? And, and 52 weeks, so that's 2,080 hours. And then I say, multiply that by 60 minutes and that's like 124,000 minutes. And then I say, divide that by 19,000 cases and it comes out to six and a half minutes a case. Mm. So we can all feel better that we've provided someone with a lawyer, they have a person standing next to them yeah. who, who when, when they plead, because they're going to plead when you get a <laughs> six and a half minute lawyer. Right. Um, so they, get, they have a lawyer standing next to them when they enter their plea. Uh, but the reality is we haven't given them a meaningful defense. And the people that this falls on is not me. Um, if I get charged, and I, you know, I have no reason to think I will, <laughs> but if I get charged, I can afford a lawyer. Right. The people who get the six and a half minute lawyer are the people who can't pay. Right. And so even to this day, we're not really living up to our promise of Gideon that we, that we will provide you with a meaningful lawyer who can provide a meaningful defense without regard to your financial means. I think that's core to America. You know? So we don't have enough lawyers and we don't have enough money. What do we do? With, we do have we do enough lawyers. Them? We choose. Not, uh, we, we're, the, we're one of the richest nations in the world. One of yeah, if not uh, the right, right, um, yeah. right. It's not that we don't have enough money; it's we don't have enough will. Okay. Um, uh, if we it, and, and I, I also put it like this: Listen, if we were, we were authorized to bear the sword under certain conditions. I just keep coming back to this as a Christian, and the conditions were that we achieve accuracy through process. And that process means if you're going to load up the government with a lawyer who knows the rules to represent them, then you got to give the defendant a lawyer who knows the rules to represent him or her. Yes. You know, as I was listening to you talk about this the other night, I, I, I kept going back to uh, your distinction, the way you talk about not everything that's immoral should necessarily be criminalized. Right. Uh, we could just take drugs, for example. Yeah. Um, and how how much if we decriminalize and by the way i'm not i'm just i'm thinking out loud right? i'm not yeah hypothetically if we decriminalize something like marijuana how much that would do to decrease that load on the state right i mean i think that that's what people don't really take into account is that every time you make something a crime uh the legislature adds a new crime or mm -hmm. chooses to keep something a crime that means you need more prosecutors to prosecute it mm -hmm. more police to investigate it and more defense lawyers to defend it but what you see often happen is when these new crime bills are passed, there's funding for more prosecutors and no funding. I don't mean a little, like no funding for more defense lawyers. Right. And so you're inevitably creating a situation in which the defense cannot provide a meaningful defense. Yeah. And so we're creating a system in which we are not, and phrase it how you want, when we're, we're not being accurate, we're not providing all reasonable means of process to ensure accuracy, we are... We, so we're not providing due process in effect. 
we are not being impartial because this burden of lack of process is going to fall on the poor. Um, and the risk is that ultimately we could be convicting people who didn't commit the crimes. And when you look back at the situations with the exonerations I mentioned earlier of the 3,272 exonerations since 1989, so many of them are cases where the lawyers just didn't do everything that needed to get done and often because they just didn't have the time. Right. Um, and so if we're going to provide all reasonable means of procedural protection in order to achieve the biblical goal of accuracy, the biblical mandate of accuracy, that means funding defense lawyers for the poor uh, so that they can, so that the poor can be defended fairly and so that we as a society can have confidence in the verdicts reached. Mm. I'm sure there's more that we can unpack there. Let's move on to the next section, evidence. Yeah. So as you just kind of think, we're, we're, we're sort of proceeding through a trial, right? We've defined a crime. Mm-hmm. We've picked a jury. We've got a judge to preside over it. We've now got a defense lawyer in place, hopefully. Yeah. And now we're going to move to the evidence. And uh, there's a lot to talk about uh, with regard to evidence. Just two things I'll highlight. One, the same year that the Supreme Court decided uh, Gideon versus Wainwright and said you had the right to a lawyer, the Supreme Court also decided a case called Brady versus Maryland in which they said you have a right you have a right to evidence of your innocence. Which is mind-blowing that they had to say that. Right. Yeah. I, I just wanted to pause there and yeah. just like you know, let that sink in. In 1963, the, the U.S. Supreme Court said, if the police collect evidence of your guilt and innocence, they have to give your defense lawyer the evidence of the innocence. Hmm so they can use it because right. it wouldn't be a meaningful process if we said we're only going to con- consider the evidence of guilt. Right. Right. So if the prosecutor or if the police go out and investigate and they find two witnesses who say, I, I saw that guy do it, but the third witness who was standing in that group saying, that's not him. He, the guy who did it was wearing different color jeans. Like they can't hide the guy who's had a different, has a different description mm-hmm. and only mm-hmm. bring in the two people who said you did it. Right. And who can identify you? They, they have to hand over. And then your lawyer, as part of engaging in a reasonable defense, can decide, do I want to use that evidence or not use that evidence? But if the lawyer never knows about that evidence, then the jury will never even have the possibility of knowing about mm-hmm. that evidence. This is not some radical proposition that trials should include the evidence of guilt and innocence. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until 1963 in Brady versus Maryland that the Supreme Court said, <clears throat> that's the law. But the good news is, is now that the Supreme Court has spoken on that, uh, we just do it. Yeah, just just like Batson uh, in jury selection and just like uh, Gideon and the right to counsel, we got that all squared away. The court has spoken. The court has spoken and no one is going to disagree. So talk to me about Brady violations. Yeah, so in 2012, I believe it was, a federal court of appeals judge appointed by President Reagan wrote an opinion after looking at a series of cases and said, this is a quote, there is a epidemic of Brady violations abroad in the land. Mm. That was his assessment, that this is a runaway catastrophe of Brady violations. Uh, we all now, you know, epidemics and pandemics, we're all familiar with. Now, That's what he's yeah. saying. It's, it's spread everywhere. Yeah. And with very little effort, I was able to find numerous cases in the last year of 
of convictions being overturned because of Brady violations. Mm. It is a constant problem with the police and prosecutors not handing over evidence in their files of, of the defendant's innocence. And when you look at the exonerations, again, the 3,272 exonerations since 1989, you're not going to be surprised to learn that a very large percentage of them involve Brady violations. Mm. Um, it's a perpetual problem. Um, and we, you know, there's probably a long discussion to be had about what's motivating it. I think part right. of what's motivating it is, again, I come back to absolute immunity and qualified immunity. Mm. Um, if, a, if a prosecutor can intentionally violate your rights and knows they cannot be subject to a federal civil rights lawsuit, that means they can intentionally violate your Brady rights. They can intentionally hide evidence of your innocence and you cannot sue them in a federal civil rights case. Mm. Um, so, we're, so we're not achieving accuracy. We're violating due process because the process we're giving is meaningless. It doesn't involve all reasonable means to achieve accuracy. This is falling disproportionately on the poor mm -hmm. um, who have overworked appointed lawyers who don't have the time to dig on their own um, and have to trust that the evidence is being handed over. Um, and the result is, and for all of this, there's no accountability. Uh, for the prosecutors because they're immune from lawsuits for this and are almost never disciplined by the State Bar Association for. Like, mm. almost never. Like, I went looking for cases yeah. of that happening, and it is almost never occurring. So, like, the they can't be sued, but, like, the one means of accountability that is there, the State Bar The Bar, bar could take their law license. And they just don't. And it doesn't happen. It's so rare for that ever to happen. And it doesn't, it's frequency, which I'm talking about, like, less than, five instances I could find yeah. of like serious discipline. Yeah. Um, I should say less than five cases where someone's been prosecuted for that. And it's, I it still, doesn't match. If there's an epidemic. If there's an epidemic, you can't line that up with the number five. of, of, of rare, in, rare number of cases where anybody's being disciplined yeah. for this. Okay, so that's, that's Brady evidence. Yeah. That's your one of two. Yeah, the second thing that, that I write about at length in another chapter on, on evidence is the degree to which we wrongly think that scientific evidence that is being used in criminal cases is reliable. Okay. So the National Academy of Sciences sponsored a, a study that was directed by, I think Congress directed them to undertake it back in the early 2000s. The panel assembled some of the leading scientific thinkers in this area, some federal judges, and they wanted to answer the question, is scientific evidence that's introduced into court and is used to identify supposed perpetrators, is it reliable? Mm -hmm. In other words, if, some, if a scientist comes in and says, I did this bite mark comparison mm -hmm. uh, and I know that Sean committed the crime, like, is there any scientific basis for that? Like, is that a scientifically legit thing? Um, and what the court, what this panel, National Academy of Sciences panel, leading scientists, leading federal judges, concluded was that outside of forensic DNA technology, none of the scientific means used to identify people have any reliable science behind them. Uh, I so, heard about this not <laughs> first from your book. I heard about it in a book about uh, arson investigations. Mm -hmm. There's a whole industry built up on right. forensic evidence for who caused, the, who started the fire. Yeah. And after like 20 years, a bunch of uh, science, fire science guys got together and they said, yeah, this is all pretty much pseudoscience. Yeah. And but they put people in prison over this. Yeah. No, there's a guy, there's a man in prison today, a, a case I write about in the book in Alabama, 
as we sit here today, mm-hmm. um, who was convicted based on bite mark evidence, mm. which the um, which the scientist who offered the evidence now acknowledges was not legit, and yet the state still holds him. Another form of evidence is eyewitness accounts, and those yeah. are notoriously unreliable. As notoriously well. unreliable. Um, like horrifically unreliable. So yeah. So just an, again, some data on that of the I mentioned before the professor at Duke who studied the first 250 DNA exonerations. Mm-hmm. Um, well over half of those involved eyewitness testimony. Mm. Uh, many of them multiple eyewitnesses. One of them, five eyewitnesses said the person did it, yeah. and we know as a scientific fact based on DNA technology that did not happen. When someone tells you, I remember exactly what happened, they do not. That doesn't mean they're lying. It doesn't even necessarily mean they're wrong. But we have an overconfidence (laughs) in our memory and an overconfidence in our ability to distinguish between people who we don't otherwise know. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to mistake you for somebody else. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, at least other than Stephen Furtick, don't Uh, do that. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, uh, but you know, my ability to distinguish. It's worse across racial lines. It's, it's, we know that again, as a scientific fact, there's been studies, numerous studies done on this. And it's not just white towards black. I mean, right. It's a, it's a, it's just a a human, human, human limitation that we are not as good at identifying people as we think we are. Yeah. And so it is regularly resulting in, um, false convictions, but, uh, jurors think it's like the gold standard. Like, Somebody said they saw him do it. I mean, I think this is an example of why scripture says, man, we're not going to do this without at least two or three, Mm -hmm. right? Because the notion that one person can, with any reliability, Mm -hmm. um, any degree of confidence, confirm who committed a crime is is not um, what we think it is. It's not as reliable as we think it is. And and so uh, there's things that we can do. And so you say, well, does that just mean we don't rely on eyewitness testimony? No. Um, what it means is, again, that the, the professor who did the study on the the 250 exonerations um, after DNA technology, and he looked at the ones with false witness identifications. And by mm-hmm. false, I just mean wrong. I don't mean that the witnesses were necessarily trying to lie. They were just wrong. Yeah. And the reality is, looking at those, you can see things that happened during the investigation that, that suggest um, that, that it indicate that the police were probably being suggestive of the answers, even if not intentionally, mm-hmm. but the way they showed photo arrays right. or who they put in the photo arrays and how similar or different they looked um, or the conditions or the time lapse. In other words, we know from studies that have been done the types of activities during the investigation that can contribute to false identifications. Right. And so there's there's much to be done there I think where we could develop some limitations and put some parameters around mm-hmm. eyewitness identifications that could increase our degree of confidence. Because listen, again, I say no one's no one is loved with a false identification. Mm-hmm. the The person falsely accused is not loved. The person who's not convicted who did it is not loved because right. he or she gets no discipline from the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the victim is not loved. Society isn't Society loved. Society isn't loved. It Even is a, the person who who wrongly identifies someone is not loved. loved. Right, yeah. because they think I helped contribute to right. something that they did. I mean, it's just an all-around failure of love. Um, and and we, should, we should care about that. We should care about all of those neighbors. But 
all of them are impacted. So even if you only care about one of the neighbors more than the other, we should you should care about this. Yeah, um, this is not achieving love, and thus not achieving justice. Uh, moving on to sentencing. Yeah, we kind of already talked about. We did this, talk about but- sentencing. You know, we're a we're a harsh sentencing country, and I say that again based on statistics. We uh, incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. And we incarcerate more people per capita than any country in the world. We have about 19% um, of the world's prison population and about 4.5% of the world's population. Okay. Um, Sorry, it, when you say you say that based on statistics, I'm guessing you're saying that so that people don't think that you're like a anti-American. No. Because that's how, how often America is not the best country in the world. Just look at how many people we incarcerate. I'm, gl- I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm, I love being an American. Um, I, I, it is, we should stop and ask ourselves, why are we punishing so many more people? Why are we imprisoning, not punishing? Why are we imprisoning so many more people than the rest of the world? Okay. On a, and an absolute basis and on a per capita comparative basis. Okay. Um, and then even within the U S we have widely different, um, uh, punishment rates and imprisonment rates. So mm-hmm. the lowest being, I think Vermont, um, I think it's like 70 people per 100,000 and the highest being Louisiana, which I think is like 700. Per, mm. So it's almost 10 times high. I mean, there's a wow. huge, huge variation. Um, you know, we, we imprison far more people, as I said, on an absolute basis and on a per capita basis than anywhere else in the world. And even if you think, well, that's because, you know, we commit more crime uh, and thus we need more punishment, we should stop and ask ourselves, what's wrong with us mm-hmm. that we're committing so much more crime? Mm-hmm. Like that just raises all types of other questions. Like what's gone wrong that that's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe step back on at a macro level and see what we can do. Because again, no one's being loved if we've got runaway crime rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should ask ourselves what, what we could do even to solve for that. Well, uh, I think an entailment of the sentencing conversation is probably our last point of discussion, which is the death penalty. Yeah, you disagree with me on this. Oh, you didn't have to say that. That's what you let's, told let's, me. Well, I did tell you that. <laughs> so um, w- one of the things that you say in, in your chapter on the death penalty is that in law school and then throughout a portion of your law, early career as a lawyer, you were full-throatedly, wholeheartedly in favor of the death penalty, Correct. and you've changed your mind on that. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I have not changed my mind on the morality of the death penalty as an abstract concept. Okay. So, in other words, I think it is we are morally authorized uh, by Scripture to execute people for murder. Just murder? Uh, I think that's an interesting discussion. I think the answer to that is yes. Okay. Um, You know, I think, again, reasonable Christians, and I have friends who are reasonable Christians who (laughs) differ with me on this. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's limited to murder. Okay. Um, George Cheever, who was a Congregationalist minister in the mid-1800s, was a very vocal proponent of the death penalty. Um, frankly, if you want to read the most compelling Christian argument in favor of the death penalty, and I mean in favor from Scripture, from, from a philosophical perspective, from a practical perspective, um, George Cheever— uh, wrote a book. You can just Google, I forget what it's called, In Defense of Capital Punishment or something like that. Okay. You said he was uh, a Congregationalist? Congregationalist person? Calvinist in the mid-1800s. So in the mid-1800s, there was a movement in the United States to abolish the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And Cheever was kind of the leading American voice 
taking this on. In fact, other people were lamenting that it was a ridiculous cause for him to expend his considerable oratorical skills on. People mm. who were upset that he was so effective. Yeah. It's a very compelling it's not a it's maybe a 120-page booklet. Okay. You can find it yeah. on like archive.org or whatever. Okay. Um, and I've read the whole thing through. It's very well done. It's very compelling. I agree with him. Um, but he he argues that it's only permissible for um, murder. Okay. And maybe maybe slavery, actually, he says. Sort of interesting. Interesting. Um, but he kind of just footnotes that, and you're kind of like, spin that out for me mm-hmm. there. And he doesn't, well, when was he writing? Uh, Mid-1800s, like he, probably like 1848, yeah, I think, somewhere around there. Yeah, he definitely footnoted that. Yeah, yeah, he definitely <laughs> footnoted that. Um, so, yeah, he definitely. He was from Massachusetts, so uh, so you can kind of see where which yeah. side he's on there. Yeah. So, so I agree with him that I believe that the death penalty is morally permissible under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it's the under certain circumstances that gives me pause about the American system of capital punishment. So again, we must be accurate. We must afford due process. We must be impartial. We must be proportional. And we must provide for accountability. Mm -hmm. And in a system where we fail so badly on those points, as hopefully I pointed out by this point in the book, mm-hmm. on juries and on judges and on appointed counsel and on Brady violations, um, uh, I, I am concerned that we are operating a system that, that is imposing the ultimate punishment without sufficient impartiality and accuracy. Right. So, so therefore, practically, you think because we can't do it uh, well, we shouldn't do it at all. I would say it slightly differently. I would say okay. because we are not doing it in accord with biblical justice, we are doing it without authorization from Scripture. Well, uh, steel man in the case here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and actually, you know, this is a little bit more my opinion than an abstract steel yeah. man. But you, you even say early in the book that um, you've had people say to you, Matt, why are you writing this book? We are the most just society that the world has ever known. Uh, and your response is, yes, I agree with that, but we can do better. Okay. I, I, say, I say that that's not really the right question. Right. The right question is, are we doing all we reasonably can do right. with, the, with the stewardship we've been given at okay, this so, moment in time? So here's my question. And let's, say, let's just say for the sake of debate that we aren't the most just society, but we're up there. Yeah. We're, we're way up there. If, if we can't reach the the necessary qualifications in order to execute or in order to carry out uh, the death penalty. Uh, I mean, who can? So I don't accept that we can't. Uh, you don't accept that we can? I, I don't accept that we can't do better. I don't okay. accept that we can't achieve biblical justice with regard okay. to the death penalty. What, I, what I'm concerned about is that we refuse to. Okay. Um, when we are still picking jurors in capital cases on the basis of race, that's not because we can't stop. Yeah. It's because we won't. When we don't provide people with uh, lawyers who are sufficiently competent and capable to handle these cases, it's not because we can't. It's because we won't. Um, in fact, in other words, it is an injustice to people who are victims of murder that we refuse to provide a justice system that is sufficiently reliable that I, that I could get behind executing people. Mm-hmm. In other words, I believe that is a just punishment. And it is an injustice that we refuse to run a system 
that provides a reliable verdict that I could say I'm comfortable that the people being executed are, are guilty. It is an injustice that we are in, that we are administering the death penalty on the basis of race so that I can't say this is an impartial system that I believe is authorized to carry out the death penalty. It's an, our failure to provide a just system to administer the death penalty is an injustice to victims of murder. Mm-hmm. And I'm upset about that. Mm-hmm. It's also an injustice to people who are wrongly convicted and who are subject to racial discrimination in the administration of the death penalty. I'm upset about that. That's an injustice to both crime victims and the criminally accused. It is a failure to love them both. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I'm asking. When I say I oppose the death penalty as currently practiced in the United States, I'm not saying we can't get it right. Okay. I'm mad that we won't get it right, okay. that we refuse to get it right. You say, you say refuse. That makes it sound as if you are acknowledging uh, little progress or almost no progress. Not at all. I mean, well, this isn't. We're, I'm not saying this is 1955, the United States. Okay. Right. Of course, things are better now. Okay. Than they were. I mean, we're not lynching people. That's progress. Right. right? We are. We've at least said you have a right to counsel. We're not even executing. If we're not, yeah. Even, yeah. even if we're not fully providing it. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not here. I'm not foolish in saying we're, we haven't made progress. Yeah. I'm saying we aren't where we are morally obligated to be based on who we are uh-huh. as a people with particular resources at a particular moment in time. My stewardship is not the stewardship of 1920s America. It's of 2020s America. I have, we have particular wealth. We have particular scientific technology. And we have an obligation with that stewardship to exercise it in a way that achieves all, the, all accuracy that's reasonably available to us with what we have. And, and that's what we're not doing. And, and just let me give a couple examples on this because my, my, my concerns are not abstract. They're tangible. Okay. Since, since the death penalty was reinstated, the death penalty was found unconstitutional in 1972 and it was reinstated. States responded to the, court, the Supreme Court's constitutional concerns and it, it changed their death penalty statutes. And so when we talk about the death penalty in America, we're talking about the modern death penalty, 50 years roughly since 1973. Okay. Since 1973, I think roughly 8,879 people have been sentenced to death. 184 were subsequently exonerated, 2%. So maybe you say, okay, like one out of 50 is the best we can do. One out of every 50, that's what 2% means. One out of every 50 people we sentence to death is in fact innocent. Mm-hmm. Innocent, didn't mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. The, on average, it takes about 15 years for someone who's sentenced to death to be exonerated. Um, and not every case where someone has has 15 years, you know, not everybody was sentenced within the last 15 years. Sometimes people die on death row before 15 years, and so people quit investigating their cases. And so statisticians have looked at the the or the the when people are sentenced to death, how long they were on death row, how much time passed, and so they've tried to extrapolate from the two percent we know if all 8,879 went the distance, what would be the, went the distance meaning either to exoneration or to execution, mm-hmm. what would be the exoneration rate? And the estimate's like 4%. Okay. One out of every 25 people that we're, that we're condemning to death didn't do it. Mm-hmm. These are in the cases where we are throwing the most lawyers at the case mm-hmm. for the defense, mm-hmm. and we're still getting it wrong 4% of the time. Mm-hmm. Think about what that tells you about the case where we're not throwing you know, adequate, you know, much more in the way of defense resources at it. What do we think our error rate is there? 
So I'm, I'm not willing to accept one out of every 25 people being executed. And, and Sorry, I, can I pause you right there? Yeah. What would you executed say? Executed who's innocent. What would you say to someone um, who says that they are willing to accept that? Well, I would say, what I would like, say. Sorry, let me clarify the question. Put a final Who says that's on it. A, that they think that's the best we can do, right? Well, but they, but they would say it, it would be a greater injustice to stop it for such a, I know, a small is relative. Yeah, no, right? I know what you're saying. But for such a small margin of error, it would, it would create a greater injustice to eliminate the death penalty than to keep it with such a small margin of error. Yeah, so there's a little bit of utilitarianism in there, mm-hmm. right? The greatest justice for the greatest number. Um, so I'm, I'm already concerned. Right. Um, but I, I would point people back to, to Genesis 18, uh, a forgotten story many times where God and Abraham are negotiating over Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And, and Abraham, after God tells him what he's going to do, says that he's going to destroy the cities for their wickedness. Uh, Abraham says, what if there's 50 mm-hmm. in a whole city right. of wicked people are you willing to, are you going to really wipe out a whole city of wicked people and kill 50 innocent people in mm-hmm. the process? Surely you wouldn't do that, Lord. And God says, if there's 50 innocent people, I will spare a whole city of wickedness to save 50 innocent people. And so Moses, and so Abraham says, what about 45? Right. What about 40? Because God says there aren't. What about 30? Yeah, there aren't. What about 30? Yeah. What about 20? Lord, don't get mad at me. One last time. What about 10? Mm-hmm. God says, I will not destroy. I will not execute an entire city of wicked people if doing so meant I killed 10 innocent people. Mm -hmm. So if you think it's okay to execute one out of every 25 who's innocent, I want to ask you whether that aligns with Genesis 18. Mm -hmm. Is that God's standard for accuracy? Are you taking accuracy as seriously as God took it? Because God said, I won't execute a whole city full of wicked people. Forget 25, 24 if it means I'm going to execute 10 innocent. Mm -hmm. So why are we willing to execute one innocent for every 24? Guilty. Yeah, right, right. So when God established corporate punishment for the nation of Israel, right? uh, How do you think that they did on accuracy? I I wish I knew. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. You know, but, but ultimately, again, I think, there, there's sort of two issues there. If they didn't act with accuracy, if they mm-hmm. didn't use all reasonable means, then they were acting wickedly. Right. And they aren't us. They didn't have videotapes. They don't have DNA. They didn't have the wealth that we have to, to uh, throw at these issues. And so uh, the question again is, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Are we using all reasonable means available to us? to achieve the accuracy? Are we fulfilling the stewardship we have to achieve the accuracy we can achieve? And do we take as seriously as God took in Genesis 18 the, the protection of the innocent? That's what I, that's what I want. So that's my one concern. Mm-hmm. I mentioned impartiality. So um, people have raised questions about race when it comes to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Again, we're going to, probably the one other area here where yeah. I, I talk about race in the book. Um, so in 19, so after the Supreme Court strikes down the death penalty in the early 1970s, they do so in part for, uh, out of concern, different justices had different reasons, but the main one that a number of justices expressed was concern about um, racial bias and its administration. I mean, we're coming out of the civil, you know, the civil rights 
um, Act had only been en- enacted in 1964. So this is this is a time where America's has some has has some real challenges yeah. to put it mildly right. on the air in the area of race. So the Supreme Court strikes down the death penalty and identifies particular concerns with the death penalty statutes that they suggest are allowing for race to infect the issue. And so states respond by amending their death penalty statutes. So this is 1973, late 72, early 73. So fast forward to the early 1980s. Uh, and the Supreme and the, um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, which had challenged, which is which was challenging the death penalty because they were still concerned about its racial bias, decided they got a grant to do a study. And so they hired a law professor named David Baldus from the University of Iowa Law School to do a study to determine whether whether race was still infecting the administration of the death penalty, notwithstanding the changes made since 72. And so Baldus says, listen, I'm willing to do the study, um, but I actually think everything's okay. Uh, I just want you guys to know going into this, I actually think that these these changes have probably fixed everything. And 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 they say, and NAACP says, that's fine, David. You do the study, and if you're right, that race isn't affecting the system anymore. You can write an article about it, an academic journal. You'll be famous. You can right. write all the journal articles you want about why we're wrong. But if we're right and race still affects the death penalty, you agree to be an expert testament, expert witness in cases where we bring to challenge the death penalty. Mm-hmm. He says, you got a deal. Mm-hmm. So they give him the grant money, $250,000, and he says, I'm going to start with Georgia. So he goes up and he collects a stratified sample a statistical concept, a stratified sample of all of death penalty cases in Georgia. He picks a little over a thousand and they send researchers in and they code every one of the 1000 files for 300 different variables. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're they're trying to figure out, is there something other than race that's explaining the death penalty? And so they code it for 300 different variables that maybe are what's affecting it, uh, affecting the death penalty here. And then they run a statistical regression analysis and Baldus calls uh, the lawyer at the NAACP, who became a professor of mine in law school. Mm. And he says, so we've looked at the results and we can't find anything that's affecting the outcomes other than race. Out of 300 other uh, possible 300 variables, yeah. no matter what way we do it, it's race. Mm. So, they, so they bring a case challenging the death penalty on behalf of a guy named Warren McCleskey. Uh, and the case goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in, the, in early 1987. Antonin Scalia, Justice Scalia, had just been appointed by President Reagan in 86. And one of his very first cases is McCleskey versus Kemp. And there's been a memo released since Justice um, Scalia's, um, it was released before his death, but uh, came out years after this case. An internal memo he wrote to the other justices saying, he looked at the Baldus study and he said, uh, it's not an issue on which I need additional proof. Our, uh, of course, race affects the administration of justice. In but America. Scalia was a lib. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scalia was a liberal, right? An arch liberal. So you can read the memo. I quote, I, I'm not remembering the language here yeah, precisely, right, but yeah. I quote it. And I give you, you can go back and read the whole memo if you want. It's in the footnotes. I right. quote the relevant language. So he acknowledges that there's a racial, race is infecting the administration of the death penalty. What's really interesting is what Baldus found was that was two things relevant to McCleskey's case. One is he could say to a statistical certainty that McCleskey would not have been sentenced to death 
if the racial makeup of the case was different. Hmm. And the racial makeup at issue is that you are statistically more likely to be executed if you are a black person who kills a white person than right. if you kill a black person. Right. In other words, we are saying black lives don't matter as a nation or don't matter as much. Right. And so it's actually the race of the victim that is driving the death penalty outcomes. And that, so yeah. the Supreme Court looks at this and he says, listen, this violates the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which says that we'll have equal protection of laws, that the law will apply equally with our, without regard to race. The 14th Amendment was adopted in, in the wake of the Civil War. And, and the Supreme Court looked at this and said, five to four, says his execution can go forward. Despite the fact that he could prove by statistical evidence that, that he would not likely have received the death penalty had his victim been, he was black, had his victim mm-hmm. not been white. So just to close the loop on that story. Okay. In, 19, in September of 1991, Warren McCleskey was executed in a cinder block building in Southern Georgia uh, on a, in a prison camp there. And his lawyer from that case went to, went to the execution, my friend, uh, John Boger. Um, this was in late 1991, uh, late September 1991. Earlier that month, September 1991, a man was executed in the state of South Carolina named Donald Pee Wee Gaskins. Donald Pee Wee Gaskins had been a serial killer, um, but his store, his execution uh, made headlines early in September of 1991, not because he was a serial killer, but because his was the first execution since 1944 where a white person was executed in the United States for killing a black person. Mm-hmm. 1,700 executions between 1944 and September of 1991, and not a single one of them of a white person for killing a black person Right until Donald Gaskins. And later that month, we executed Warren McCleskey, who we know, um, based on statistics, was, would more likely than not have been sentenced to death had he killed a black person instead of a white person. Mm. That is a serious problem with impartiality. And so to me, when you combine the the problem with accuracy in the death penalty in the United States and the problem with race, neither of which are problems we could not solve if we had the will to do so, neither of which we couldn't solve if we knew that if we we applied the veil of ignorance, if we didn't know which slice of pie we were going to get, I bet you we'd solve it. But the reality is because we know of the racial impact and it's not likely to impact me, we're not as concerned about accuracy as we need to be in the United States. Um, rich people aren't executed. That's, you know, again, statistical studies have been done on this. It falls on the poor and it's being administered to people on the basis of race. And I cannot say as a Christian that that satisfies biblical justice. I cannot get behind that. Um, it, do, it is an injustice that we refuse to administer the death penalty justly. It's an injustice to victims and it's an injustice to the people being executed. First of all, I'm really glad I don't have to oppose you in court. (laughs) Uh, And I'm glad I'm sitting here as your friend and not someone who's trying to win a debate against you. Last question about that. Yeah. Uh, If what you're saying about the criminal justice system is true, wouldn't your logic then have to apply to all forms of bearing the sword against wrongdoers? Yes. I want us to go back and fix, you know, all of these things. I've written about all of them. But if we have to stop... uh, uh, 
executions, would yeah. that not also mean we need to stop everything else if that logic holds true across the board? Yeah, and so I guess, so, I, and I understand that concern. You're saying, well, if the rest of the system is is not impartial and if the rest of the system is is racially biased or the rest, yeah. rest of the system is not accurate. And I guess where I come out on that is by saying that death is different. Yeah. Um, that that taking someone's life is and is it's different is different yeah. in kind, yeah. not just different in degree. Okay, um, and that given that, I am not willing to execute people if we are not committed to being accurate. That doesn't mean I'm happy with with uh, with imprisoning Putting people. people jail, yeah, but we can at least there is some some st- chance that remains to fix that. You know, to undo it. We might catch it late, but we can catch it. Um, you can't undo it once you kill somebody. Yeah. Um, and, and the statisticians that projected that it's 4% um, of people who are, conv- who are sentenced to death are innocent said it is almost statistically impossible that we have not in- executed someone who's, who is, uh, in fact, innocent. There's at least 20 cases where innocence is highly in doubt. We haven't proven definitively. Yeah. But I'll just give you one last story on this. In 2000, in the run-up to the presidential election, there was a story about a man who was on death row in Texas who had been convicted based entirely on the eyewitness testimony of one witness. And the question was, what would President, uh, soon-to-be President Bush do about it, mm-hmm. Governor Bush at the time? And he allowed the execution to go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was a, that was an evil. Mm-hmm. We have no authorization from God to, to execute somebody based on the testimony of a single witness. Mm-hmm. And Christians should have said no. Christians should have said, we will not stand for that. That is an evil. And instead, presumably President Bush made the judgment, soon to be President Bush made the judgment to let it go forward because he thought that's what the public wanted mm-hmm. or that it would harm him to, yeah. to, to stop it. And so- Sorry, hold on real quick. Yeah. Lest anyone think that you're just trying to rack up points by- critiquing Bush. I worked in his administration after he was elected. (laughs) You and I had a conversation yesterday about the Iraq war where in a way that I was surprised by, you defended him. So this is not like you're just taking pot shots I went and worked in his administration after this. I just strongly disagree with that judgment. I think it was immoral. I think it was unjust to allow that execution to go forward based on the testimony of one witness. God has not authorized us to do that. And to do it is to murder. Speaking of the death penalty being different in kind, not only by degree, especially from a Christian perspective, and again, this is not saying I'm in full agreement with you, but- You'll get there. Right, hopefully, (laughs) in heaven, if nothing else. But even from a Christian perspective, assuming that this person is not saved, we are sending them to hell. Sending them to hell with no authorization from God to do that. Yeah, I mean, so just to highlight how it could be different in kind. Yeah. Uh, if if we've eliminated all rightly, chance to repent, that's right. Whereas if if punishment is administered rightly, even in a secular court, it could possibly, through God's strange providence, lead them to repentance. Yeah. So yeah, Matt, we have really still only <laughs> talked about only half, scratched the surface, like half of the stuff in your book. But we <laughs> have to end at some point. The project's never done. It just yeah. has to be turned in. But uh, I want us to end on the same note that you are ending on, and as you go to speak at. Stanford, Harvard, Yale, you end most of your presentations uh, on the gospel. So yeah. you want to do that here? Yeah. I mean, I, I ultimately what I want people to take away from this is that while we should strive for justice now, our hope isn't injustice in this life. It's in eternity. 
know, I mean it when I say, you know, this, this makes me emotional even to say it, you know, I mean it when we say our promise as Christians is that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, we will continue to struggle against injustice in this life. We will see it in the lives of our friends and family, people who are mistreated and abused. You know, I think now about a, a person I'm trying to help through a spousal abuse situation, and it's sometimes all you can say mm-hmm. is he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the danger is that we can look at this injustice that we see and we can think, well, I'm glad I'm not like those people who mm-hmm. are committing that injustice. Um, but we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the response is not, thank God I'm not like them. The response should be, you know, I am a man of unclean lips mm-hmm. and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he, he calls everyone um, to come follow him. Mm-hmm. And he pardons all who come. Yeah. And uh, that's what I want people more than anything else to, to take away from this, is that there is an eternal hope, mm-hmm. an eternal justice, a land where, um, you know, I just, I, there was a quote that I included at the end of the book, just a series of um quotations by Augustine, um, you know, that was just such a reminder to me um, as I was working on this, you know, just about the hope that, um, you know, that God offers in Mm -hmm. eternity. And I, I just wrote this. I'll just end with this paragraph from the book. I said, so we hope for that day when, as God assured, he will make all things new. We look for the promised new heaven and new earth in which justice and only justice will dwell. That land, Augustine writes, is one whose king is truth, whose law is love, and whose limit is eternity. It's a city where the just alone have a place, the wise alone leadership, and those who are there possess what is truly their own. History, it could make a stone weep. The hope is that every tear will be wiped away. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your son, Jesus Christ, uh, suffered the just penalty for sin that we should have taken on our own head and shoulders. Uh, Lord, you provided the sacrifice for us to receive mercy. You are the perfectly just judge of the universe. All that you say and do is true and right and good and beautiful and perfect. And we are the ones who have rebelled against your rule. And yet you've loved us and you've made a way for us to come back home to you, for us to be justified, declared innocent, even though we are in fact guilty. Lord, in light of that, help us to be a people who are hungry for justice. May we, in our justification, go out and seek justice, not foolishly, not believing that we can achieve it perfectly, but hopefully, uh, realistically, understanding that you will one day come back and implement it perfectly. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on that day. Help us to to be ready for it. You could come back tonight and do it for us. And we pray that you would, Lord Maranatha, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.